Aren't TV movies fun? Join Amanda, Dan, and Nate as they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies on the Made-for-TV Mayhem Show. It's Amanda Reyes at the Made for TV Mayhem Show back again with my two co-hosts. Yay! We have both of them again tonight. And we're going to be talking about two thrillers starring Kathleen Beller because we are bonkers for Beller, which is actually completely true. And if you're not bonkers for Beller, you're dead inside. I mean, that's really all I can say about it um, because she's one of the most amazing actresses ever that graced the small screen. Um, and I adore her to this day. That's kind of what we're going to be doing tonight. We're going to be talking about two of Now, she's made several TV movies. And interestingly enough, she did... The TV movie, Are You in the House Alone, which is what I named my book after. But we're not going to do that one. I'm saving that one for a better double. But I thought these two would go so well together. And that is um, No Place to Hide from 1981 and Deadly Messages from 1985. Um, they turn out to be kind of eerily similar in a way, which I didn't really recognize until this go-around. So it'll be really fun to sort of discuss the differences and the similarities as we go along. I also want to um, tag this episode uh, as... Uh, one that's going to need to have major spoilers. So both of these films kind of rely on their twists and turns. And um, without spoiling too much of my opinions on the films, it's like we're going to just spoil the shit out of them because you have to talk about where these movies go. And I think that they're both kind of amazing in how they do what they do. And so if you haven't seen the films, it's probably better if you just go into them blind because they're really worth sort of discovering at face value and not really knowing what's going to happen. Um, however, if you have seen these films, um, I hope you loved them just as much as um, some of us do. Uh, and so <laughs> I guess let's get started. I wanted to do just a little bit of housekeeping real quick. And I'm only doing this at the beginning because I'm never quite sure how many people make it to the end. Um, just two things I want to mention real quick. Um, one is that I recently recorded a, a Blu-ray commentary with my friend Bill Ackerman from the podcast Supporting Characters. We did the commentary track for Last House on the Left for Arrow uh, Video, which is coming out in May. And you can get it through Arrow Video in the UK or Diabolique uh, DVD, I believe is what they're called, here in the States. And I'll put the links on our website for that. Um, I'm just really excited about it and I wanted to mention it. it's a big deal to me. Um, you know, we did an entire episode dedicated to Wes Craven. I think it was the second episode we did. And I've written about him in my book. And so if you want to go back and think about his TV movies, we do talk a little bit about his TV films um, on the Blu-ray. And so anyway, look for that in May. And I also want to mention just real quick, and I'm not real sure I'm going to get this episode up in time, but in case I get this out before April 8th, Are You in the House Alone, which I co-wrote with Dan and some other people and I edited, was nominated for a Rondo Award, which is a really huge deal right. in, the, yay, in the horror community. And so the, you can vote for it until the 8th. Uh, just Google the Rando Hatton Awards, or Rondo, I'm sorry, Hatton Awards. And um, you can see there's all different types of categories. Um, our friend Tom Elliott, who runs the Twilight Zone podcast, was nominated. And that's a great podcast um, if you're wondering who you're going to vote for in that category. Uh, there's all kinds. There's uh, commentary tracks, movies. I think short films are on there. Magazines, articles. There's all different things you can vote for. And if you find that you're looking at the list and Are You in the House Alone is your favorite book and you wanted to throw me a vote, I would really love it. You can email... Um, your votes to terraco at aol.com so that is t-a-r-a-c-o at aol.com 
Now, if I don't get this up by the 8th, then it's not going to mean anything, but I'm going to do my best. Um, I had a lot of stuff fall into my lap this last week, so I'm going to be crazy busy. Okay, so that's all I have to say about that. So let's um, get started and say hey to Dan. Hey, Dan, what's up? Uh, I, I just had two thoughts. One, when you were talking about last house on the left, I, I had the thought in my head, man, I can't wait to get that new little house on the left, Blu-ray. And <laughs> so I thought good. that would be an interesting movie, <laughs> the, the uh, last house on the left, little house in the prairie mash. And the second thing is, for you folks listening who love when a movie uh, has that trope where someone sees something and they call everyone else into the room and say, look at this, and that thing is gone and everyone thinks they're crazy, you are going to love this episode so stay tuned in oh my goodness i'm not even sure what that means that's so cryptic just like the movie right yes yes it's got its own twists and turns okay mm -hmm. um so that's something you look forward to hey nate what's up um hey amanda and dan i decided to check the back seat of my car before i left work this evening <laughs> and came home <laughs> soon it? nathan soon <laughs> Yes, yes, it's a little creepy, isn't it? That scene. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so he's referring to No Place to Hide, which is um, a movie that um, I've seen like way too many times. And the more I watch it, the more I love it. So, um, yeah, super excited. And I, I'm hoping that we're all in for comparing it to Prom Night, are we? Yes. Good. Yes. Okay. Yay, because that's important to me. Okay, so um, I guess we'll just get started. Uh, I feel like I've done uh, so much talking, but I'm going to keep going here. So I did a little bio, I guess, on Kathleen Beller. It's very informal, um, just to kind of give you an idea. If you're not too familiar with her work, you probably have seen her in something. I know, Dan, you probably remember her from Black's, Ma Black's Magic, right? Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, she's in... Um, the pilot. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, her course. dad is yeah. the great Gasparini. Yes, Which that's is right. hilarious, oh. right? Because he goes underwater and his name is Gasparini and his magic trick is oh, to be submerged. Get it? You know what? I'm actually going to put that episode on as you're doing the bio. <laughs> Good. I, okay. <laughs> I thought of you for some reason when I was writing this up, even I don't mention <laughs> black magic in it. So um, I'll just tell you uh, this about Kathleen. So she grew up in a place called, and I'm going to totally mispronounce this, but I think it's called Croton-on-Hudson, which is a small town north of New York City. Um, she actually was a dancer but um, she didn't have much luck, and she said she had feet that were too big and turned in, and she was I guess she was too awkward at it. So she decided she wanted to try acting a little bit on a whim, and so she had some photos taken and got a list of agents from a friend of hers who was modeling. So um, actually within days of getting that list, she went into an agent's office, and they hired her to do a Mars Bar commercial. They sent her out, I should say, to do a Mars Bar ad, which she got, and that was her first acting gig. Um, then she, she was about 14 at the time, or maybe 13, and she went to Bristol in England, and studied acting and then she a couple years later she landed a part on search for tomorrow which was a big soap opera back then in the 70s um she, i think she was 16 then uh then she landed a small part in godfather 2 and she had managed to consistently work she appeared on a lot of shows in the 70s like barnaby jones and the six million dollar man uh but she actually dropped out of acting for about uh six months because she claimed that it was too difficult to get turned down um she came back though soon after and then was cast in the telephone Mary White, which I have to tell you I haven't seen and I hadn't really heard of till I started doing some research on her, which I'm embarrassed by because it's a pretty big film. Um, so she plays Mary in that movie, and that was based on a true story uh, where she plays a young woman who dies from injuries sustained in an accident. So the relationship is about her dad and her, and then I think what happens after her death. So um, afterwards, she made a few iconic telefilms, including uh, the aforementioned Are You in the House Alone from 1978. And of course, I would say that No Place to Hide is her, is her other iconic film. Until recently, her last job was, uh, her act, last acting job was in 1994, where she provided uh, the voice for a video game called Siberia. But she uh, recently reappeared in a short film called Tom in 2016. 
Um, now, she was married early on, but divorced that man and married Thomas Dolby in 1988, and they have three children. And she actually, in between the years that she wasn't acting, she worked as a doula, which is someone who helps women with the childbirthing process and also helps them with uh, postpartum depression. And as far as I know, that's what she's probably still doing and, and being married to Thomas Dolby. So I guess there's a lot of synthesizers in her life, I'm assuming. And uh, I think she's really incredible. So, um, Dan, are you yes. back? Okay. Do you oh, want yeah. To oh, yes. I, I forgot that she's the character in Black's Magic who spends most of the time in a miniskirt. How could you forget uh, that? I, I'm remembering it now. <laughs> and it's I forgot how many fun people are in this. David Huddleston is a lot of fun people. In oh, this, my gosh. In the pilot movie. is so amazing. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. It's and, and Harry Morgan looks like he's having the time of his life. And not to get <laughs> off topic, but he was because so his wife had died, Harry Morgan's wife. Oh. And he decided he was just going to kind of drop out, I guess. And he had retired. And then I think after she died, he was like, you know what? I really need to work. And I think this might have been the first thing he did afterwards. And I think he was just really happy to be like yeah. working. And I really feel like that of all the things about Black's Magic that I love, it, the relationship he and Hal Linden have and the fun yeah. Harry Morgan is oh, having is really fucking contagious. Yeah. It's a really, really yeah. good series. Um, but anyway, we're not here to talk about Harry Morgan. Yes. We'll do that yes. later <clears throat> when we get to Man Eaters Are Loose, which we will get to. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, do you want to go ahead and get us started with um, No Place to Hide? Yes. No place to hide. All right. Now, I am I am going to go up to a point, and we are going to spoil everything, but I'm not going to spoil everything in this plot description. So it's going to be tough for those of you who haven't watched the movie because, yeah, you're going to find out. Here we go. All right. The movie uh, starts off with a night school, some sort of a night school class. It's an uh, art class, sketching. They're sketching a, um, a model sort of wrapped in a sheet with, you know, and they're sketching her. And there's a gal named Amy. Who is who is uh, Ms. Baylor? Beller, Beller. Sorry, I, I keep saying her name. I keep. I've been doing that all week. I've been. I've been calling her Catherine. I've been calling her Kathleen because I. I, I know. I know. I, I always know. forget to call her Kathleen for some reason. I always want to call her Catherine Beller myself. I actually work with a woman named Catherine who is two offices down from a woman named Kathleen. And whenever I see them, I just wave to them because I'm always afraid I'm going to say the wrong. Yes. So Amy is she? She's a star, and she's doing some sketching. And she, uh, the class ends, and it's dark, and she walks uh, out of the building into the parking garage, gets in her car, she's driving along, and uh, listening to classical music, which is her favorite sort of music. And then as she's going, suddenly she looks in the rearview mirror, and there is a man sitting on the like right up against the uh, back seat passenger side door, all dressed in black with like a like a kind of a ski mask or, or like at least a hat and something covering his mouth and, and dark glasses on. So you can only sort of see like his cheeks and kind of his nose. And she and Amy just freaks out. And this guy says, soon, Amy, soon, which makes Amy go off the road. And she runs out of her car screaming. And a gentleman kind of pulls over for her. And she says, and there's someone in the car. And the guy looks in the car, turns to Amy and says, there's nobody in there. Dun, dun, and the credits roll. The opening credits roll. That's not the end of the movie. No place to <laughs> yes, hide. That was a great so, movie, wasn't it? So that was fantastic. So then it immediately cuts to Amy, and she sketched out a picture of the man in black, as we'll call him. And she's at the police station with the Sergeant Newman, who seems very flustered by her. You can sort of see why the, uh, the description I gave of this man with only his like nose and cheeks showing is exactly what he gives. she gives to Sergeant Newman. And Sergeant Newman sort of points out that 
that's not going to be terribly helpful. And we learn at that point that Amy has at least twice before reported to the police seeing this man and the police have found no one just like the man in the beginning. This is, is strange. Sergeant Newman is is kind of belligerent, and Amy's kind of uh, slightly worn down. Uh, but she, you know, she holds her own. And then eventually uh, her mom shows up, played by uh, Marriott Hartley. And um, uh, I'm gonna, it, it's, technically it's Amy's stepmom, mm. but I'm going to call her mom throughout, sure. I think. And Adele is her name. She comes in, and she's apparently been there, too, because she knows the sergeant. And as they're leaving, the sergeant kind of says, you know, to Adele, you know, she might need some special kind of help. And then we go back to the home of Amy and Adele. And Amy's father, uh, who died about a year ago, was a very wealthy man. And uh, they, they live in a sort of strangely defined house, um, which is just a series of rooms. And uh, they're sitting there and they're they're just chatting over a meal about uh, what, what to do with this guy that no one else seems to see. And Adele seems to believe Amy, but it's you get the feeling it's getting a little trickier for Adele as this is going on. And Adele recommends, uh, uh, is it Dr. Cliff Letterman, I believe, um, who uh, was a doctor she went to see after her husband, Amy's dad, died, and Adele was kind of hitting, hitting the booze. And Amy says, okay, and she's going to call Dr. Letterman. And then before Amy turns in for the evening, we see that in her room she is sculpting uh, her he- her own head. And there's constant references to uh, fixing the nose, making the nose correct. The next day, Amy meets up with Dr. Cliff Letterman. And Cliff Letterman is played by an actor whose name I've never said aloud. Kier DeLay? DeLay? You know, I don't know how that's his interesting. Name. I think I always call him Kier. Oh, my God. Kier DeLia? I, I think I call him DeLia, but you might be right. It might be DeLay. Okay. I almost call him Udo Kier, Kier or, 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 half the time. But, yeah, it's, it's from 2001 from Black Christmas. And he, um, he plays a very uh, clinical psychologist. And he's very... Uh, Tweedy. I don't know if he's wearing tweed, but he has that sort of <laughs> yeah. professorial feel. He pulls up in a Stutz Bearcat, for heaven's sake. And it's, he's not from the 1920s, but he pulls up in like a Stutz Bearcat and he's talking to her and she's telling about her life, saying, you know, she doesn't have a boyfriend. She had one about a year ago, but nothing since then. And her dad drowned a year ago. They have a cabin by a lake and he went out at night on the lake and drowned. And she keeps seeing this guy, but no one else does. And Dr. Letterman is very sort of of um sort of uh he, he's got that sort of psychology hip psychologist feel he's one he's the kind of guy who um he says like do you mind if i smoke and she says no not at all and then as she's talking he spends like the next three minutes preparing his pipe like <laughs> tobacco and he's hitting the pipe and, and, and eventually he starts smoking right before the conversation ends he doesn't quite believe that the man is real but he says here's my card you call me if you need to call me and she says okay she heads on home and she's got a delivery from the fl- a local florist and she's excited she opens it up and it is a wreath made of i, I think it's black roses I-, I didn't really quite look at the the flowers too long but they're black flowers yes. and just a big card that says soon amy soon i added the voice there did nate do you remember when allison got those on Melrose place Yes. <laughs> I remember when she's sitting in her apartment alone and like somebody's trying to get in the door. Yes, yes, yes. You're talking about the Keith Gray episodes, right? Yeah, like oh. the her stalker. Yes. Oh my gosh. But so it was funny because I'm just rewatching my worst place now and so she just got those roses a couple weeks ago. And so it was impossible for me not to watch that scene and think about because Allison's reaction is so different because Kathleen Beller's reaction is very like horrified, but Allison like takes it. I should say Courtney Thorne Smith. She takes it like up like twelve notches. 
Like, <laughs> which is what she does with everything on that show. But, like, you know, it's like Kathleen Bellers, oh, my God, to, oh, my God, you know what I mean? For, like, five minutes. And it's amazing. But, um, anyway, just in case you want to compare this movie to Marvel's Place, I can help you. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Adele, mom, comes down. They go, oh, my gosh, let's go to the florist. And they go to the florist, and uh, they say, who, who, who? Who ordered this? And the florist kind of looks at looks at Amy and says, "Quit, knock it off." And she says, "What do you mean? You were in here a few hours ago, or yesterday, or something. You ordered them. What? I didn't order them." And he keeps saying, "Yeah, you ordered them." It's like, "What's going on?" And eventually, Amy kind of assaults the guy. She shoves him into a bunch of flowers, and Adele says, "Come on, let's go, let's go." And it's like, "Oh boy, what's happening?" Excuse me. You delivered this wreath to 14 Beekman Street this afternoon. Sure. Well, Ralph did. Uh, Ralph does the deliveries. But you took the order? Sure, I did. Can you describe the man who placed the order? <laughs> what is this, a gag? Please, this is very important. Can you describe him? Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You want to play games? Go find yourself another playmate. I've got time for this sort of thing. Wait, really, wait, I wait. I don't understand. Why can't you just tell us who placed the order? <laughs> Ah, uh, I suppose you're going to tell me you forgot. What did she what? forget? Now, look, lady, I don't know what she's trying to pull. She came in here, not three hours ago, picked out the wreath, paid for it, and asked to have a delivery. That's a lie! Amy. Will you get her out of here or I'll call the cops? What, are you crazy? That's not true. not true so they go back and amy's lying down laying down and um i forget the gentleman's name i want to say his name is james the lawyer i'm just going to call him the lawyer yeah, it's james. the family the family lawyer comes over and it's it's said that um james is friends with adele and was sort of best friends with the dad i don't even know the dad's name do we no, get the dad's name say the dad's name okay. you know, that's interesting i don't remember them saying it i i i um so they must so yeah, they. I, I'm pretty certain they do, but I didn't write it down. It um, must be so they're, they're Mr. Manning. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Yes, Mr. His first name is Mr. And he's so he's he and they're they're talking about Amy and how this is a little strange with the florist and everything. And Amy hears it and kind of yells at him and says, "Why don't you do something about it? Why don't you try to? Why don't you do something to help me?" And they're kind of it's it doesn't go well. And Amy says, "You know what? I'm out of here. I've got a class to go to. I'm going to a class." And Adele doesn't quite say this, but she says uh, something more along, less along the lines of, well, last night you saw this guy after leaving class and you're going in the dark again to this class. Don't. And Amy says, I'm going. And she goes. And so Amy is at this class and it's dark and she's she's sketching and every, the class ends. Everyone leaves. She finishes something else. She's the last one in the, uh, in the room. And she goes out to her locker and um, suddenly... There he is, the man in black. And we get a nice chase through the hallways and such, Which and the music has like a, a hint of synth in it, which is really sweet. And she gets chased around a bunch, a bunch and eventually she, she runs out of the building, runs towards the parking garage. She almost gets hit by a car, sort of pulling out of a driveway or a parking garage or something. She makes it into the parking garage. Someone is still after her, but it's not the man in black anymore. It's a gentleman named David Norlin. And David David has the best sort of chat-up line ever, which is, uh, hello, 
my name's David, and I'm not a mugger or a rapist. <laughs> and of course, what what can Amy do? She comes up from behind the car and says, "I'm here." And he finds her keys. She she lost her keys when she almost got hit by the car. Hello, are you all right? Uh, listen, I didn't mean to scare you. Are you okay? You dropped your keys in the street back there. I'm... I'm not a rapist or a mugger or anything. I promise. Uh, my name's David. David Norland. Uh, they don't make muggers named David. <laughs> when I saw you running there, I... thought you must be in some kind of trouble. But if you're okay, uh... I'll leave you in peace. Um, but... I don't know what I'm supposed to do with your car keys. Uh, Venus rising. Just real quick, just real quick, I want to um, talk about that chase scene. So the beginning, yeah. and we're going to talk about the ad when we get to the background, but um, the, the first part of this movie always reminds me of Prom Night. And now I'm also thinking that part of it reminds me of Halloween. So I just want to real quickly go. So so sure. the um, is it balaclava or whatever that the guy's wearing is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always want to say baklava. So apologies if I'm mispronouncing. <laughs> it. um, <laughs> it's different. Um, is uh, very reminiscent to me of the killer in Prom Night. And also he says now, now. And this guy's like whispers yeah. Sue, Amy soon. And it's very similar to me. And when he's chasing her through the hallways, I always think of Wendy in Prom Night. And I'm wondering, did you guys make that oh, connection? Sure. Actually, I thought about the Slumber Party Massacre. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. With Brink Stevens' big yeah. chase scene at the school. I, I, I actually thought about both those. I also thought about some final exam, too. Sure. Just the way he's kind of framed at the end of the, the hallway and stuff. But yeah, yeah I, I thought I of yeah, Slumber Party Massacre. But, yeah, it's yeah. really interesting the way this movie kind of starts like it's going to be a slasher, which isn't what it is. But mm-hmm. And when we get to the ad campaign, we'll talk about how they marketed it as a slasher. Um, so I'm really fascinated by it. Plus, you know, Prom Night's one of my all-time favorite films. So the oh, uh, sure. aesthetics of this film, I'm really gravitated toward. I, I really gravitate towards because of that. Because I think it just it just reminds me so much of it. Also, it just occurred to me when you're talking about the car. Doesn't she try to get the guy in the car to help her? Is it this film or is it Deadly Messages? And the person drives it's off. De- it's deadly messages. Okay. The old couple in the car. This this one, she just kind of looks at the guy, and the guy goes, "Why are you crazy or something?" Yeah. And she keeps on running. Yeah, okay, never mind. Then I'm not going to make the Halloween reference. Um, so we'll save that for Daily Messages. But anyway, so I just wanted to bring that up real quick because every time I watch this movie, I just always think of Wendy um, in Prom Night. Oh, and there's a little bit too when she's hiding by the door, a little he knows you're alone when he's peeking in yeah, the door, when yeah. he's peeking you're in the right. window. Yeah. I also, though, I thought, a little of Wendy, bit of every... I thought of Wendy then too because you know that scene right at oh, the sure, very yeah. end when the killer catches her because she goes into that like closet. Yeah. And he mm-hmm. just happened to have put all the bodies in there or whatever. And then, you know what I mean? She just happened to pick the one closet oh. in the entire freaking school. <laughs> that, you know what I mean? And so she she ends up revealing herself because she screams or something like that. And then Killer yes. her. Um Also, something that's really interesting about this film is uh, Kathleen Beller did an interview for some newspaper, like AP Press or whatever. And um, she talked about how this she was really drawn to playing this character because it was the first time she got to play an adult role because she looks so young. But it was really hard for me to decipher. I mean, obviously they say how old she is because she's getting ready to turn 21, which I'm sure you'll mention. But it yes. feels like a high school to me that she's working at. And I know it's night school, but it's, it's got a real, locker. Yeah. yeah, it's got a real teenage feel to it. And I kind of wonder, so it's based on an unpublished novel, and I kind of wonder, or story, I don't know if it's a novel. I wonder if the unpublished story had her as a teenager and they aged her up. 
Yeah, possibly. I wonder because because it does it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a night class, but then she has a locker, which is like I don't um I don't know that that's how that works. No, it's strange it to me. Strange. Yeah, I feel like I feel oh. like she started one age in the original version and ended up a different age at the end. But that's mm-hmm. just, I don't know that for a fact. But anyway, so those scenes are important to me, and I just want to point that out. So David is there, and David and Amy go out for a drink, and David talks about himself. He's he's a, he's going to be a lawyer, and he he talks and talks. And Amy is having a little like brandy or, or something. I don't know what she's it's having. Brandy, a little snicker or something. And she freaking wolfs it down. She does. She does. And it doesn't seem to affect her, though. No. Might, maybe it's stage brandy. For a tiny little uh, thing, you know yeah. What, you, know, you know what's interesting? I just thought maybe what it is is because the, the guy comes up and puts their drinks down. I'm sorry, but she looks like she's 17. And and uh, and he doesn't you know say, hey, are you 21? He just puts down the drink because she says, oh, thank God he didn't ask for my ID or card me. Um, because she's only 20. She's three months away from being 21. She says that. And um, and I think what it is, is the they knew she was under 21. So they gave her watered down. Brandy. Oh, yeah, maybe, That's why she's maybe. able to chug it. So 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 and they just they just have a talk. And it's kind of a, a nice little chat between the two of them. And he's very sort of like um, charming and, and sort of like uh, wanting to like uh, he, he's he's wanting to be a good guy, you know, and 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 get her attention. And she's interested. And um, just, except when he begins, I'm sorry. Just quickly, I want to mention that um, the actor is Gary Graham, and you probably recognize him from either A, Robo Jocks, or B, Alien Nation, <laughs> the TV series. Oh, nice. Uh, so, oh, oh, and and the the only the only uh, spot where the conversation goes a little sour is when he tries to figure out what's uh, sort of up with her uh, while she was running around crazy, and he brings up, "What were you? Uh, is there a man in black or something?" And he's like, "Dun dun." And he's like, "Oh, I'm sorry." And then she goes, "No, no, okay, I gotta go to the restroom. Give me another drink. I'll be right back." <laughs> I gotta so, knock so another one back, kid. I got another one back. So they're hanging out. They're having a good time. Uh, what happens then is somewhere around here, she sees in a very Halloween style. She she's still working on that sculpture of her head, and she looks out the window and she sees the man in black standing like outside the house. She's looking from second story window down. So she goes back to see D- uh, David Letterman, Doctor Letterman. <laughs> she goes to see David Letterman, and she does the stupidest pet trick you've ever seen. She goes to see Doctor Letterman again, and Doctor Letterman sort of says, "You know what? Um, with the thing with the florist and the fact that no one ever sees." this person maybe you are you might be creating this person in your mind and and the sort of the 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 theory he he uses is that she was supposed to be with her dad at the cabin but she was with her boyfriend who she's no longer with instead so she is is possibly carrying a ton of guilt for not being there to help her dad when he drowned and so he says to dr letterman says to her so, so what it is is you you won't commit suicide yourself, but the guilt is so strong that you've created this character in your mind who, if he pushes you off a bill, if if you fall off a building, you didn't do it, he did it. You know, if you die, you didn't do it, he did it. So what you need to do is you need to do something that will either sort of um, assuage the guilt, or if you are guilty of something, you need to sort of work through it and uh, sort of apologize and, and allow yourself to be forgiven. She decides to go to back to the cabin. She's going to go back to the cabin where a year ago all this happened. And Adele joins her, and they go back to the cabin. They have a fun time hanging out and chatting about uh, sort of how they first met when Adele first met her father and things like that. And, you know, Amy being sort of a spoiled brat. But they, they have a nice time. Oh, I've forgotten how beautiful it is up here. 
Yeah, Daddy loved it. <laughs> remember how he used to drag us up to the cabin on the slightest pretext? <laughs> all I remember is cleaning all that stinky fish. Yuck. <laughs> Nothing's changed. No. Okay. It'll be dark soon. Let's change into our grubbies and get down to the lake. Uh, these are my grubbies. Oh, right. Let's get rid of these bags. Can, can we talk about our grubbies? Oh, oh yeah. I actually have that here. I, <laughs> I have two things here. I have... Um, you go to uh, when they get out of the car. Adele says, "Well, go and put on your grubbies." And Amy says, "I've got them on." And then there's another moment where they eat, and one of them says, "Oh God, El Bloto." That's right. Uh, which oh, I really love. That was Marriott Hartley <laughs> says it. But so like she yeah. says, "Put on your grubbies," and then Marriott Hartley's grubbies are like pressed pants. They're like <laughs> they're like slacks. <laughs> which like, is exactly which exactly what I expect. It was hilarious, but she did put her hair down because she wears her hair is up through most of the film, and it's like way mm -hmm. too like severe like you know mm -hmm. what i mean like it's crazy her hair and her wardrobe are really good but they're like insane and so her version of casual is like still really conservative with like turtlenecks and pressed slacks and that's her mm -hmm. being casual and i think it's just really funny yeah uh so they, they they hang out and the next morning uh amy is down by the lake and she's sketching and adele gets a call from james the lawyer saying i need you to come back into town real quick we need to discuss something so she says amy i'll be back by dark okay you go and uh, adele goes and she has a conversation with james which is basically dr letterman confided in james that amy may have suicidal tendencies and and the the fact that in three months she's going to inherit her father's estate, and it's sort of intimated that Adele really isn't going to inherit much, but she can't imagine that Amy would leave her out in the cold. But but there's sort of a discussion of we need to find some you know way to deal with Amy, and it's kind of also said too that we might need to have her put away or something like that. But Adele kind of shuts down the conversation and says, "I need to leave. I need to get back before nightfall." We're about 50 minutes into the movie at this point. It's about a 95 minute film. And something happens here that is the first of the ooh moments. I'm not going to tell you what that is. I'm just going to hop to the next scene with Amy, where Amy, it's dark. Adele isn't back yet. Amy is in the cabin. Suddenly the phones are disconnected, and the man in black shows up. And there's kind of run around through the house and crazy, a cabin through the craziness and then amy has one of those things where she she runs around like the corner of a cabin all of a sudden whew, he leaps out and grabs her and puts his hand over her mouth and says now amy now and amy either is chloroformed or passes out i think she passes out and i'm gonna end my plot breakdown with we see the man placing amy in a rowboat and rowing her out to the middle of a very misty fog enshrouded lake and I'm going to close it right there before any of the twists happen, before we learn what happened to Amy, before we learn what's going on. We're going to spoil it all in a few minutes, but that's where my plot breakdown is ending. Boom. Yeah, it's kind of amazing because it gets to that point and there's still like 30 or 40 minutes left. Yeah, it's it's literally, it's 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 that's 55 minutes into the movie. Yes, we have 40 minutes left. Yeah, it's kind of amazing um, the way it's structured. Mm. Uh, so, Dan, had you seen this before? I had not, no, so not at all. why don't you start? Well, first off, when I saw director uh, John Llewellyn Moxie, the Moxie, I thought this is going to be fun. And then it's the script was uh, Jimmy Sangster. Yes, right. And I know I know Jimmy Sangster from uh, 
the in the sixties he wrote like a half a dozen. What was it? Uh, oh, I'm gonna forget all their names. Like the psychopath, the nanny, uh, the one with Susan Strasberg that I'm forgetting the name of. He wrote a ton of like psycho esque ripoffs that were all just like um, not not puzzle. I, I've been I'm, I think I may have mentioned this uh, last time we talked or time before. I'm, I've been watching Thriller, Brian Clemens' yeah. Thriller. And Thriller is very much uh, like Brian Clemens's scripts for Thriller are very much like James Sangster's scripts. They're they're very um, there are lots of twists and turns, and half the people are lying to the other half of the people, but then maybe that other half of the people are lying to that first half of the people, and everything that happens is sort of important. Even if even if it now now that's not to say that people load up films and things with um, you know stuff that isn't important, but it does happen. And mm-hmm. and but but in this like every every almost every moment where where you see something happen, it's going to come back later on in some respect. And you know she doesn't just meet David. I'll say for example, you know it isn't just it isn't just he isn't just there to find her keys. There's something else going on there. You know and so there's 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 everything means something. And the the sort of measure of a great. Jimmy Sangster script is when you get to the end how well everything kind of goes together this one does an interesting thing where about uh, a little under an hour into it the whole sort of um, uh, uh, where it's going all like flips all of a sudden and I won't quite say where that is yet I'll let you guys do that because I just did a lot of plot there But, but it's basically you're watching one plot line go and then all of a sudden and it's like whoa! And suddenly, the the last like thirty five minutes are just focused on another character in another space, and something else is happening. And it's um, it's I think it's really quite good. I think everyone in it is very good. The um, the only the only uh, thing I had was I thought it would have been better, but they I don't think they did this anymore in the early eighties. I thought it would have been better as a ninety minute one that was just mm-hmm. a little tighter. Yeah. Uh, just 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 because um just because. Uh, I, I would have liked to it to have got to the first twist maybe a few minutes sooner, and soon, um, Amy, the, soon, so soon, Amy, so uh, and I would have liked the sort of last like thirty five forty minutes to maybe be I I, I was never bored, um, but but there there is a feeling like uh, at at some point during the last half hour or so where, where we're like okay now we're just kind of filling up time a bit we could be a little little tighter here I think but that's I mean. I am not uh, sort of denigrating the film. I just think I just think I guess it's watching those thrillers. All those thrillers are like sixty-five minutes long, and they just they come in, they do their business, and they're gone. This is a half an hour longer than that. I just kept thinking if it was like twenty minutes shorter, this would probably be one of my all-time favorite things. As it is, there are a lot of things to love about it, and I'm sure we'll go into all of them. But that that's my my basic thoughts on the movie. And and Ms. Ms. Beller is is fantastic. Yeah, she's great in it. Um, Nate, what do you think of it? Oh, well, being how much I love slasher movies, even though this isn't quite a slasher movie, I think it's awesome because, I mean, it's in a way, I mean, it's it's sort of a slasher movie without the slashing. Yeah, because there's a lot of stalking, like, you know, chase sequences and stuff like that, which are, you know, big in slasher movies. But the scene in the car at the beginning I don't know about that business. I probably would have had a heart attack. I'd been like, soon, Nathan, soon. I'm like, no, it's now. And then I'd be dead. Um, it's a big one. But, 
<laughs> but the opening credit sequence is great. I think Kathleen Beller has this great, like wide eyed, you know, scared look. So I think, you know, she fits, you know, the, the role so well. Um, and actually, even though she had been to the cops many times, I thought the cop was being a jerk. I, did I didn't too. like the way he was yelling at her. I was like, because <laughs> oh, well, I'm like, I know that she might be bugging you, but what if she's like, well, like, what if she was actually like crazy? Then, I mean, yelling at her is not going to help. You're right. Well, I, th I think there's that one moment there, the one moment where the cop won me over because I thought he was mostly overdoing it. But there is the moment where she says something like, where he says something to her and she says, Look, Detective Sergeant, Sergeant Newman, I'm tired and I'm this, I just want to go home. And he says, You know what, Ms. Ms. Manning, I'm tired too. I got, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then he calms himself down. That was the one moment where I was like, Okay, this is a harried police officer here. So yeah, but if there was a drink sitting nearby, I would not have blamed Kathleen if she happened to throw it on him. <laughs> in a very dramatic fashion. Oh my gosh. Like, cool off. <laughs> it's, too bad, it's too bad she didn't. That's the one thing this movie's missing. Because, you know, I mean, and then the florist is the one that gets pushed down, and I was like, oh, you should have done that to the cop, too. But I love that she did that, because I don't think she was your typical, like, damsel in distress right. cop to me. Oh. I thought she was a lot more proactive in this movie. You know, she investigates herself. She tries to figure it out. When she's terrorized, you know, at, at her house by the stalker, you know, she grabs a knife. You know, so, I mean, she's, um, I would say that... Um, you know, she, uh, the title's good because it's like no place to hide and actually, um, I think she spends more time running and, you know, kind of fighting back in a way than she does hiding. She hides a little bit, but, you know, as the title says, there is no place to hide, so <laughs> it's just ain't gonna happen that way. She, um, she is a defiant character, I agree with that. Um, and I liked, you know, towards the end when she grabbed the, the shotgun, I mean, because, again, you know, being proactive. Now, she does make the mistake of dropping it. But I'm willing to let that go because it's Kathleen Beller. <laughs> I wouldn't let that go for just anybody. She's so um, happy to hear that. Oh, yes. <laughs> Hi, Kathleen. And I guess since we are going to spoil, I'm going to give everybody yes. a fair warning. Because I want to talk about some stuff with the ending, so I'm going to spoil it. Okay. And um, so... I didn't guess what was going on. You know, I didn't realize that the twist that, that was going to happen, you know, maybe I was being too dense, no. but I didn't. Um, basically, you know, Kier, I always say delay too. And um, Adele are working together. They're a couple and they're the ones, you know, behind it. Well, I mean, at, at this point, they're the ones behind it. I just kept thinking to myself the whole time, like Adele was so wrong for that because she could have had it all rolling in the deep. <laughs> and then look what she does. That's so. Yeah, unleashed. I think I think I think Amy would definitely have 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 said, yeah, please stay here and here's here's some money and enjoy yes. enjoy life. I can't. I mean, because we we never quite learn, do we? What her we never quite learn her dad's name. We never quite learn what her dad did. He's just a wealthy guy. No, but the the it's whole. It's not nice work if you can get it. The whole thing about their relationship, though, that I love is when it becomes so. So when Amy goes in the lake, we all assume that she's dead. And then uh, we find out that Adele and um, Cliff have been having... Dr. Letterman. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Letterman have been having a pretty saucy affair and that they had killed the dad. And what I find so compelling, though, is that Marriott Hartley is truly conflicted about what she's done. I don't know so much about the dad, but, like, so when they were at the cabin at the beginning, she always refers to... Um, Amy always referred to Adele as Adele or mother, and she calls her mom. 
and they note that in the cabin and there's like a closeness there and you can tell that Marriott Harley actually likes Amy but she's gotten herself into the situation where she wants the money and she wants Cl she really wants Cliff um, like really wants Cliff and so like she I, I don't know that he's instigating things really I don't want to put all the blame on his shoulders because she is re partially responsible at least for the death of the dad and the attempted murder of Amy but you feel like Cliff is kind of driving the car a little and that Adele is going along for the ride because of how she feels for him. And so, like, as the film progresses, she's, you can tell that she's, she's, like, fucked up inside about what she's done. And I like that. I like that she's just not a bad or good or bad character. You know what I mean? She's got all these different things and happening. She, and she goes off the wagon, too. She, she gets oh, back huh. on the booze. Sort, yeah, sort of helped by cliff who, who right. says to her uh, yeah something like um yeah you you should have a brandy right now and he kind of says it you think he maybe he's saying it like a doctor but then you also think maybe he's sort of doing a little two-timing there to get her boozy again yeah huh. cliff is a tough one to figure out i feel like of all the characters huh. in the film you you get to know him the least which is interesting because i didn't realize till i watched it this time that david is only really in one scene that's that's a big mm -hmm. scene and the rest he just sort of shows up at the lake at one point so like um and then he's at the end right and we'll talk about the end mm -hmm. but like I, he seems like such a like he's so much more prominent in the film so i think it's interesting that i feel like i understand gary better even though there's a really ambiguous ending with him involved in it than i'll ever understand cliff <laughs> you know what i mean and cliff's like in a yeah. bunch of scenes yeah. and so he's a really mm -hmm. interesting character because because i feel like he is really sort of guiding where this is going more so than adele and and I just like that if you're going to spend the last half hour with two people who are killing other people, I think it's really nice that they're three dimensional and that yeah. they're different. They're they're clearly unique, and um and that makes them really compelling to me. Particularly Merritt Hartley, I think that's she's so amazing in this movie. I can't praise her mm. performance enough in this film because you really watch the first half of this movie thinking she's she's a really good woman who's like taking care of Amy and mourning the loss of the dad and trying to help amy through things and going through her own stuff and then you find out that she's like a murderer and it's mm -hmm. kind of a surprise like nate said like he didn't get the twist and i think i'm trying to remember the first time i saw this i don't think i really knew where it was going either and a few years ago um i got a copy of it and i hadn't seen it in a long long time so i forgot most of it and i watched it and then i watched it again <laughs> and then i watched it again and it was like, I just, I loved it. There's just so much happening in this film, which is really interesting because there's only like four or five cast members, right? It only takes place mm -hmm. in like two, three different locations, four, I guess. And, and yet it's just like magnificent the way it just keeps spinning things, you know? Mm -hmm. it, it builds characters a certain way and then it flips the switch on them and then they're a different way. And that's almost every character in the film with the exception of maybe Amy. Yeah, the and may, may I just, I, I think... This is the point where I just like to spoil everything very quickly. Sure. So, so folks, because folks, um, about 50 minutes in, right after the scene with the lawyer and Adele, the lawyer calls David, who's at the lake, and he's watching Amy. And you think, oh boy, what are they up to? And then you see the man in black dump Amy in the, in the lake. And then we cut back to the cabin, and Adele pulls up, gets out of her car. The man in black steps out of the darkness, and it's Cliff. Right. Like, okay, so what was what were David and the lawyer up to? And then the last half hour of the movie is looking for the body in the lake, having a tough time finding it. 
Adele drinking more and more. Cl- uh, uh, yeah, Cliff saying um, uh, we can't be we can't be seen together. That kind of thing and weird things happening in the Manning household. Um, the uh, the sculptor the sculpture of of Amy's head keeps appearing in different places and she clears out. Uh, Amy's room, but then all the stuff reappears in the room. She hears Amy's voice one night, and it's oh, it's good. it's uh, and and then it's sort of like, but it's like the first half. It's it's great because she's having the stuff happen to her in a variation that Amy had happen to her in the first half. She's she's hearing all these things and ever and Cliff is kind of like, okay, calm down, calm down. It's it's nothing, and it just builds and builds to the big ending, which um, you know, evil does not win. I'll say that. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think evil wins. Well, yeah, in the end. It, it does have a super ambiguous ending. But real quick, you made me think of it. So Nate was talking about how this movie reminded him of a slasher, and what I think is so interesting is not only do the characters flip the switch, uh, but so does the structure of the screenplay. Because you definitely feel like you're walking into a slasher, and then it becomes a thriller. And so mm-hmm. even the tone it sets at the beginning changes, like partway into the film. And so like everything is, it's like you're completely like, not on, it's edge of your seat, but like um, you're never quite sure where you are in the film mm-hmm. because it does so many things, even just like the tone is changes, mm-hmm. not just the characters. And so it really keeps you sort of like, oh, what's the word I want to use? It's like you, you don't really get a sense of space. Like you would in, in yes. a more traditional film, and I love that because even though we're only only in a couple of different spaces, we never really know where we are. You so you're sort of sort of off kilter the, the sort of the whole yeah. the whole time, and, and it's great too because one of the Jimmy Sangster things with his scripts like this is all this strange stuff happens, and then in the end they don't fully explain how all of it was done. Like she clears out Amy's room. And then apparently, like the lawyer and David sneak back in and put everything back in the room without her knowing it, you know. And you would think someone might see something like that, but it doesn't matter because at the end, it's just like, yeah, you know, like we were doing all that, you know. It's like, yeah, it doesn't. The the details don't matter. It's all about what's happening. It's its own universe, you know. Yes, exactly. And so I feel like I feel like because the performances are so genuine and because the story is wholly uh, satisfying by the end. That it's okay that it, that there are things that don't necessarily make sense, because it's still a really satisfactory ending, even mm-hmm. though you're left hanging. But I mean, like I think as a whole, when you reflect back on it, um, it's it's a roller coaster ride. You know what I mean? And, and I can yes. appreciate it as that. Well, how yeah. many psychos does Amy have to deal with? <laughs> I swear, yes. I'd move to a deserted island where nobody lived, and I'd start a new life. But with my luck, there would be like some tribe on that island, and they'd be like, "Ooh, look at her! I'm about to stalk her next." <laughs> well, here, here so we there'd go. Be, Nate, there's no getting away. Nate, I want to steal your after the credits because okay, so let's oh, okay. talk about the end because the end is very important. So. So let's get right up to the. There's there's like two different endings. So they've got the mom kind of gaslighted, right? Um, the lawyer and David. And um, and she's fully going crazy. And she calls Cliff and she's like, you got to come here. And he's like, well, I need to, you know, you don't know what he says on the other end of the phone, but he's like, I have to park down the street, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I don't give a damn if the neighbors see you. Just get here. Like, she's really on edge. And she's like, I don't care how much of this is exposed anymore. Just get me out of this house. She's like fully on edge and freaking out. And, um, and she's packing and she turns around, right? And Amy is there looking like she just came out of the lake. Yeah. And sort of and, like the creep show, uh, was it, uh, Ted Danson yeah. and his, yeah. his, yeah, when they're. I should say they of... dragged the lake and they quote unquote found her and she had to identify the body, which was a really mm-hmm. kind of genius touch on the lawyer's part. Um, and so, so she, 
she turns around and she sees Amy and then the, one of them shuts the door and and Cliff comes and he's trying to get in there and she has no idea what's on the other end of the door so she just shoots first asks questions later she has this gun and she kills her lover right which is totally shocking and he just goes down right and so and then you know everything is revealed and the police come and and we find out that the the lawyer and I guess David have been conspiring and I guess they have been conspiring with Amy but I'm unclear as to how long Amy was aware of what was happening mm -hmm. like did she go to the lake knowing that something was probably going to happen or yeah. or did it happen after I mean I guess you have to assume after because she maybe wouldn't have been so hysterical when that guy shows up but so so anyway everything gets cleared up and she I'm guessing turns 21 and she marries David and she's having these dreams about what's happened and everything. And so she gets up kind of in the middle of the night and she's working on her sculpture and David comes in and they kind of make references to them being married for two months, I think, or something like that. And then being really happy and blah, blah, blah. And then he tells her to get ready for bed and she leaves and he looks at the sculpture and he, and he just leans into it and he says, soon, Amy, soon. And the movie ends. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh my god, what happened? So <laughs> so do you guys think that David is going to kill her? Or do you think that that was just a thing? Because she, she was... Because she, she had told him, I think, about the voice, right? And that he mm. was making a reference to something else? I don't know if that even makes sense. I know, Nate, Nate, what do you think? I'm still thinking. Well, um, I mean, in all honesty, I thought that he was a villain... Uh, just by the way he was talking. So I assume that he was going to try something later. Although I always have this image in my mind of her like standing outside the door and him saying, you know, soon, Amy, soon to the sculpture and her walk in and be like, what was that you just said? And him be like, soon I'll be getting you some flowers. <laughs> Dead you know, flowers, black flowers. The anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> but that would be in like a, I don't know, maybe a Three's Company episode. But um <laughs> I have to say that, yeah, I think that he was probably going to uh, maybe come after her, which, you know, again, is like rotten luck for her. Uh, but I think we're dealing with Kathleen Beller, and I think if he tried, then she broke out Mr. Shotgun again and was like, um, did you not learn what happened to the other two people that tried to mess with me? <laughs> yeah, I think I just have a hard time thinking about David as a bad guy because he's so charming. And then it seems like he's rescuing her at the end with uh the lawyer james and so when i see that ending i'm always like oh no this must mean something else this, it's, this it's, it's, it's tricky too because if he's if he's m married her then he he's there with all the money too yep. so what is it that he's he's after you know what i mean my my first thought is that cliff isn't dead that that was a fake out oh. to adele that they that the lawyer wow. paid off because the lawyer says that he figured out something was wrong when he went to the florist and he said the person sometimes if you give more money to someone they'll sell the other person out and so he gave the florist more money than um than uh, than Cliff and Adele did and the florist said yeah it was that crazy Marriott Hartley broad and uh, so I think uh, uh, Cliff and James are doing something because Cliff is still alive and David is going to become very confused when the man in black returns because he thinks Cliff is dead. But it's going to be James dressed as a man in black, so he'll have kind of like a big gut, Aww. sort of. So it'll be like, oh, the, um, you put on a little um, weight there around the, uh, the region. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, I, I, th I think the thing with that ending is and slasher films do this to me too is that certain certain slasher films have so many 
twists and turns that when I get to the end and I see like a final tw- like um oh I'm trying to think of one well I, I guess maybe Mother's Day you know where the oh, sure. I won't say what the end of it is but like the end you see the end of that and you think oh no that's one too far I, it's it's just like it's just like there there are certain films of this time where they just don't know when to stop the twists and I tend to certain movies this one included I tend to tune out before that final moment so i don't think he's up to shenanigans i just think he's 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 just kind of i think he's he's fondly reminiscing uh, about um some fun they had at the lake and everything i think he's just soon amy soon <laughs> you know if we had stayed for another moment he would have laughed and patted the sculpture on the side of that head and gone into bed and uh, had a nice evening with um uh, miss beller there i think although he does do that. They do well. It's not his fault though, because as she's sculpting, they do a very slashery scene where someone with gloves and a knife, as a little bit of so sort of pianoy synthiness plays and begins to approach her and approach her as she's sculpting. Gets closer. It's closer. And then yeah, it's just David with the uh, anniversary gift, yeah. which has one of my my favorite moments in the film, where he hands her the gift and she looks at him and goes, she says him like, "You nut." And I just love the way she says that. <laughs> the gloves are, like, super important because he's wearing the gloves, I think, when she first meets him. And then he's got them in the phone booth when he's talking to the lawyers. Yeah. He's heading to the lake. And then he's wearing... So I think it's kind of interesting that the gloves are, like, part of him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, yeah. and you very don't, giallo. Yeah. yeah, but you don't notice it until, mm-hmm. like, the end. That's true. You know, it's so kind end. of yeah. an interesting little additive to it. I, I think I think David's going to go into the bedroom and Amy's going to be there. They're going to have a lovely evening, and then he's going to wake up in the morning and he's going to think, "What was I doing with that sculpt? That sculpted head?" Saying, "Soon, Amy, soon to her, what a jerk I am! I'm going to go do nothing for the rest of the day and love it." So I I don't think I don't I think he's I think he's a good guy who just had a moment. Well, it's kind of interesting. Like if he's conspiring with James, how well do they know each other? And are they also are they both in cahoots? Because if she oh, dies, then he gets the bulk of the estate. As the yeah, because the the, da- the the David and James um uh thing is never quite um it's, it's never you never quite figure out like because David sort of when she's almost hit by the car she drops her keys and he meets her that way right and he he would have probably met her he he would have prob he was probably possibly sent by james to meet her right. in any way he could and, and so he used the keys but there's something about that where it's like hey she was running from that guy who's after her and she dropped her keys perfect and you know it's 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 one of those things where it's like that's um that was lucky for him yes. that that happened yeah so i always kind so. of wonder in the back of my head if maybe him and james were just together i don't know as lovers but that would oh be great. there's a thought that would be great there's- but I it, hadn't thought of that. <laughs> but if they're, but somehow they're connected in a deeper level. Then I think the film lets us see them. Maybe as. could are they are they like um uh, is like father and son maybe? They or could be, but or... I think I think Amy was close enough to James that she would know. Okay. It it has to be a lover. Okay. Oh, that would be a f- no no place to hide too. Still no place to hide. I know where you <laughs> hid last summer. No, I know. <laughs> yes. So, okay. Um, is there anything else we want to say about this movie? Uh, you know, it's funny. I wrote like two pages of notes. Um, I do have here that occasionally what Amy says does sound like baloney. 
some of the stuff she says about the man in black. So I, I can see how some folks would be. Um, oh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Just to be before I forget that um, this movie might be the last time he did it, but uh, this is the Moxie moment. And so when Amy, when Merritt Hartley's getting ready to leave the house, and Amy shows mm -hmm. up, and she's supposed to be dead. That happened in two other films, so I'm going to be super spoilery. I think we all know the first one is Home for the Holidays, right? Where Sally Field mm -hmm. is laying in the bed. And then the second one is A Taste of Evil, which I think was also written by Jim, Jimmy Sangster. Oh. And they have the, the... I can't remember exactly how that one plays out, but I'm pretty sure that the uh, woman ends up pretending like she's dead and then to um, expose the other person as a killer. Um, so, I think Home for the Holidays did it better. Do you think <laughs> I so? love her screaming. I love her screaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And her hair. Like, she and grabbed her hair. It, yeah, and then the way she, like, starts laughing maniacally. Well, Eleanor Parker is one of the most, like, uh, unashamed actresses ever. Like, she just put it out there. However mm -hmm. she could do it, she did it. And um, mm -hmm. and she was always fantastic. But I don't know. I mean, this is my favorite um, of those three films. It's probably my favorite John Llewellyn Moxie movie. And it was very close to being in my top three when we did our first episode and we went through our, oh, our wow. three favorite films. This one, I actually grabbed a soundbite for it, and but I was debating between this and um, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, or Fantasies. It must have been Fantasies. And, um, and I ended up going with Fantasies. But, um, but this movie is so close to my heart. I think it's just amazing. It's amazing. I I can't mm -hmm. I can't not watch it fifteen thousand times when I, <laughs> when I put it on. I want to watch it over and over again. And there's there really there's um just so real quick before we get into the background, some of the things that are really great about this movie that aren't even really story related, but like the house itself is really amazing. So like you know the upstairs has that mural that goes along the wall of the trees, mm -hmm. and they live in this really beautiful house, but they don't look so rich that like so i was really surprised that her dad had a lot of money because they look upper middle class to me but they don't look like filthy rich yeah and we do we ever get a a, a sort of a firm sort of shot of the house i uh that's a good I, question i don't think we do but it's it's got these really warm colors to it everything's really wood mm -hmm. based mm -hmm. and um it's big but you're right i don't think we really know much about the house itself and you you were mm -hmm. right that it's a series of rooms because it, it's like the second floor where that mural is it's like there's just four doors and yes. one door is Amy's bedroom, and one door is where Adele sleeps, and what's and there's two doors like between them. But what's really interesting is that Amy's studio is also her bedroom, but that house is big enough. Yeah, yeah. She, I guess she likes having that big sculpted head of hers nearby. And there's all that talk of her nose. I don't know. Is that is that a, a thing I didn't quite get? Because they talk about her nose a lot. Yeah, no, I didn't. I don't know why oh, they did okay. that. But um, but anyway, I, I just wanted to mention the house real quick because I really like it. I, I just got a couple more things. One is that my wife was in a play with Mariette Hartley yes, about 10 I, years ago. I remember that. Yeah, and they did Enchanted April together. I forget oh. what character. Um, it was at the Pasadena Playhouse, I believe. My my wife was the maid, and I forget what character Mariette Hartley played, but um, um, my wife said she was a very nice lady. Oh, and great. I said, did you, did you ask her about No Place to Hide? And she said, no, because that was 10 years ago, and you're doing the podcast tomorrow. And I said, crap. But so that was my fault there. Um, I do love the um, the guy who Amy stops in the beginning and who says, "There's nobody in there." Um, as much as I I love you know the Moxie and uh, and all the everything, he's um, the 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 dubbed voice right there is fantastically off, uh, which <laughs> which is which. That. Which, which is because he sort of turns to her and he begins to say it and then it cuts to her, but it's it just sounds so disassociated 
from the guy who's standing right there, um, which I guess makes it kind of creepy because I bet that guy was um, uh, being paid by Cliff and Adele to drive down the street behind her car because I bet Cliff was still in the car. They, that's what I think. Oh, that's interesting. I, you know what's you know what's interesting though? How many freaking loose ends did they leave then? Because the flower guy, if they really oh, yeah. did get a car, a guy in a car to do that, so Cliff had an escape. You I mean how many mm-hmm. people are walking the streets that know what's happening? That's true. Yeah, and and I I have to say this real quick because this is sort of based on well, this is something that happened in my life is that if you row a boat out to the middle of a lake especially in the dark in the middle of fog and you drive because it's it what what they what it's basically said is cliff takes her out to the middle of the lake amy drops her in the water rows away and then david comes out gets her and saves her do you know how impossible that is (laughs) not in Uh, in this movie though not a, not in this movie because I know of a, a family member who a, I had a family member who drowned, and oh. they drowned in a lake when people were nearby in the middle of the day. Sure, and they could not find the body, and just the fact that he did uh, because whenever I that's that's the one moment that I hear and I'm like nope nope I have to ignore that because <laughs> that uh, that that that's that's that just because like I said that's a, a just personal thing, but uh, but that's a moment where I was like that guy's because literally. It, it, it's like in order for him to get out there, he'd have to wait until the boat got far enough away where he wouldn't be spotted by Cliff in the boat. And so I, I don't, you know, it's a Jimmy Sangster script. I, it's a Sangster. I let yeah. it ride. So yeah, it's a Sangster. You got your Moxie moment, and there's some Sangster in there. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think that, I think that's all I have for okay. the moment. Yeah. Nate. No, um, <laughs> we we've covered everything that I that I had written down. Cool. Okay. Um, so we all liked it, which is great. Um, I think it's fantastic. I think everybody should seek it out. It did have a home video release, which is really cool. So it is available on VHS. I'll just tell you a couple things about it. So it aired on CBS on March 4th, 1981. It ran against Aloha Paradise and Vegas on ABC. I meant to look up Aloha Paradise. I think it was a TV show with Debbie Reynolds. And it actually started out as a TV movie, which aired a couple months earlier and did pretty well in the ratings. Um, it aired, uh, I'm sorry, also ran against on NBC Different Strokes, Facts of Life, and Quincy, which is, let's face it, that's tough competition, guys. Um, it got a rating of 17.5 slash 29, which just means that 17.5 million homes with televisions were tuned in, which represents 29% of the viewing audience. It came in number 98 out of 287 telefilms to air that year. It may be of interest to note uh, that there were actually no horror films in the top 20 um no horror made-for-television films in the top 20 in the 1980-81 season, which is kind of a bummer. So horror was really on its way out on the TV movie by the early 80s, which is unfortunate. But there were still some classics. Um, the New York Times did not like No Place to Hide and thought it felt like it was stretched too thin, although they liked Moxie's direction. And that's interesting that you said that, Dan, because that he's not the only critic who felt the same way you did, that maybe it would have been served better by a shorter running time. Um, also, Cecil Smith of the LA Times uh, felt the exact same way. And again, he also liked uh, Moxie's direction. They just felt like the story wasn't enough for the 90-minute time slot, I guess, that it had. Um, Tom Shales of the Washington Post actually wrote a really interesting article about a TV movie that aired the same year called A Gun in the House with Sally Struthers, which is kind of, I don't want to call it a rape-revenge movie, but it's about a woman that gets raped and kills one of her rapists in the house, and it's about, like, um, killing a rapist in self-defense and how rape victims are treated uh, by the system, and other things are in that film, too. Um, I'm doing that off memory. I haven't seen that movie in, like, a decade. 
Uh, but he mentioned No Place to Hide, and he felt like these TV movies um, were attempting to reflect what was currently happening in the cinema. He said films like A Gun in the House and No Place to Hide and Midnight Lace uh, weren't unique in their displays of the women in danger films, but they dwelled on torture for torture's sake. And what I think is so interesting about that is that he's talking about the sort of damsel in distress thing that's happening. But we've all said that we don't think Kathleen Beller is playing a damsel in distress. And if anybody wants to Google No Place to Hide TV Guide ad, I think you'll think it's a really interesting ad. I've actually lectured on this ad um, when I talk about the marketing of the TV movie. So just to kind of briefly describe it to you, uh, I'll just read you the little kind of tagline they have on it. So it says, the man Adele and Amy love is dead. Now Amy thinks she's a target too. Her nightmare and her struggle are about to begin. And then it's got an image of Amy uh, looking really terrified with these uh, gloved hands coming out to grab her around the neck. And then there's a, on the other side is Merritt Hartley looking pensive. And then in the middle is um, Amy holding that shotgun that we've been talking about. So what I think is so interesting is if we feel like she starts off as a damsel in distress, I think that they're highlighting the final girl transformation that she's going to have mm. um, in the film. And so I already think she starts off really strong because like Nate was talking about, like um, she investigates on her own. But not only that, when the cops are like brushing her off, she doesn't put up with it. She thinks enough yeah. of herself to be taken seriously. And mm -hmm. so she's not just somebody that's like, oh, this thing happened and the police are like, whatever. And she's like, maybe I'm crazy. And the only reason why she even comes to um, that conclusion is because the psychologist, who we find out is one of the killers of her father, is sort of steering her to think that. So pretty much from the outset of the film, she's completely sane and a very strong person. So in this ad really highlights that in the film. And so I think Tom Shales was off um yeah on his article but it was still a really interesting article um and so i just wanted to bring up the ad i i, th I think i think the thing with her throughout it is that she is a strong character and she, she when she yells at the lawyer and her ma they're saying you know when they're talking about well we need to do something about amy she says well do something you need to do we need to do something but the problem is that this person is so um mercurial is that the word this this man in black just sort of appears and disappears so much it's like how can you how can you fight something that that seems to be able to appear and disappear right. at a moment's notice so so it doesn't matter how strong you are if you're fighting a a wraith or a or a spirit uh, of some kind you know she's not but but that's sort of what it feels like at, yeah. at point how, how how can how can you fight it no matter how strong you are that's really interesting yeah i agree with that um, and then uh, Jimmy Sangster we talked about, but he based this, as I mentioned, on an unpublished novel by Harriet Steinberg. I don't know if this novel is still unpublished. I meant to look and I didn't get a chance. Um, of course, Sanger wrote some stuff with Hammer Studios, but he collaborated on four projects with John Willem Moxie. And that was the Edgar Wallace mystery series episode titled Face of the Stranger, or Face of a Stranger from 1964. And then he wrote the uh, TV movies Ebony, Ivory, and Jade with Burt Convy, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah, so good. Uh, a Taste of Evil, which we talked about earlier. Um, I think, not Janet Lee, uh, Barbara Stanwyck's in that. I think, uh, not Barbara Stanwyck's debut, but it came out the year after that, her debut. Um, and No Place to Hide. Uh, Marion Hartley, at this point um, in her career, was best known as uh, the woman who played... James Garner's sidekick on the Polaroid ads um, that she was doing, which started in 1978. By the time 1981 rolled around, she had done over 60 ads with Garner. Um, she said that the commercials uh, were what really took her from relative obscurity to an actress who people knew, and she was offered really good roles because of it. And I believe she said that she got the part in No Place to Hide because of those Polaroid ads. So that's really cool. And you know what? I didn't write anything down about Kier Delia or how do you say his name? I say Kier Delay. Yeah, I don't. I've never heard it out loud. 
ever. <laughs> I haven't either. I, f- I feel like, the, is there a black Christmas commentary or something we oh, could listen to? Or? Yeah, yeah, we need to because I'm not sure. But anyway, he's a famous actor. It's, pr- it's, pro- it's probably like Dullier. Du- 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 he, he has the golden voice. He is perfectly yes. cast in this film because he has such a calming presence to him and everything. Yeah. Even when he's going kind of psycho in Black Christmas, there's something really calming about him to me. The, that voice just yes. really sends me. Yes. And yeah, and it's interesting because like he's this therapist that's always asking Amy questions. He's never giving her answers, but he's still leading her in different directions, which is really so. It's a fascinating performance because he never does, and he does. I guess to some extent, he does it to Marriott Harley too, although he's more aggressive with her, like overtly aggressive. But like when she's in the therapy session, he never really says anything. He lets her come up with all of her own conclusions, but the conclusions are the conclusions he needs her to have. Yeah, yeah. It's it is one of those joyous movies where you watch the first time, and then when you go back the second time, you can sort of map all the the bits and pieces and the machinations and things that are going on, and you come up with your own dumb stuff like that guy who looked in the car was hired by them. I love I that. I never thought of that, but that makes sense. <laughs> Would that be great if like like every yeah every sort of thing around them like um, all the uh, like that the the scene where she's chased around the school. All uh, everyone in the class gets up and leaves immediately, leaving her behind. What if every single one of them had been paid? The whole town by knows. Them? The whole town so, knows. To, yeah, the whole town knows except for her. I don't know. That's crazy. No wonder why she has no place to hide because everybody's in on it. <laughs> everybody's in on it. Yeah, except David and the lawyer, and they're up to something else. That's so. right. They're too busy conspiring against her on another level that they don't even have time <laughs> to think about who else is involved yeah. in this. Oh my God, this is so weird. This is this is a huge conspiracy theory. I mean, I think conspiracy theory. And as theory. if this movie needed more twists. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. What if it's like, uh, like, uh, oh, is no, that's not a spoiler. Dead and buried, is it? That wouldn't be a spoiler. It might be because it does have like... a twisty ending, doesn't it? Well, dead and buried at the beginning, it has the scene where they set the guy on oh. fire and the whole town stands around and looks at him. Yes. Okay. So that's all right. But but wouldn't it be a great twist if all of a sudden at the ending, like like they're in the um the her bedroom and all of a sudden like curtains drop in front of the bedroom and the whole cast steps out and bows and then they go back behind the curtain and it ends and you think, Oh, the world's a stage. It's so What's it's so going? meta. That is so meta. <laughs> and we will talk about a movie that had an ending just like that, uh very similar, um, at some point. Yeah. So but I don't want to spoil what movie that was. So I guess we're done with this one. Is that cool? And we're going to move on to yeah, we... the next Twisty Turny um, Beller flick. Yes. Thursday, Michael and Laura have a passion for games, but now the fun is over. What did it say? I'm going to kill you. He's after me. Deadly messages at 8, 7 central. Thursday. Okay, I'm going to get lost in names with this one, and I apologize, but I'm going to do my best. This is Deadly Messages. This, I don't recognize the director Jack Bender, oh, writer William Blech. You will, you will when I get into the background. Okay, so here we go. It's Christmas time. Hooray! I don't know what city we're in. I thought we were in New York City. Are we in L.A.? You know possibly? what? You know what? Um, Adam Gordon left some feedback, and he seems to be oh. pretty good about the cities. <laughs> oh yes. You oh, okay. So well, well, yeah. He said LA, yes, yeah. so I'm going to go with Adams. Um, yes. Location. Um, okay, so we start off and we meet Laura and Michael. Laura is played by Our Lady of the Evening. Michael is played by the star of Four Flies on Gray Velvet. Yes. Is it Michael Brandon? Um, Brandon. 
Michael, Bre- I, I was I was going to say not Michael too. Michael, Bre- I just got that on uh, Blu-ray the other day. Four Flies on Grey Velvet from Shameless, I think. Um, I haven't watched it yet. But Laura and Michael are um, they're a couple. They've been living together for a year. They're going to some big um, social function. Uh, Michael is a lawyer. He's just become an associate at the firm where he's at. Uh, Laura works uh, well. We'll find out where Laura works in a bit because she works in the most awesome place around. Yeah, she does. But um, <laughs> so so Laura and Michael are getting getting ready for this thing, um, and they have uh, we're in their apartment, which I actually thought was a hair salon at first, but it's their apartment, and um, they're they're getting ready, and a craziness is going on, and they have a house guest, a woman named Cindy, who is very. It's weird because she, she seems sort of very Valley girlish to me. But they say she's from New York City, so I guess she's kind of um, I don't I don't quite. She's very spacey, sort of um, new agey. Kind of, well, we only meet her briefly, um, but she's she's got like a Walkman on, and she's not really paying attention. And um, uh, Lo- Amy, I almost called her Amy. Sorry, Laura is. I'll probably call her Amy a couple times. Laura, Ms. Beller, is is in a closet, reaching up on a top shelf, trying to get a box of something down. And she pulls a box out, and a Ouija board falls into Cindy's hands. Cindy is steadying a chair for Amy. I I did it, Laura. Um, And uh, Cindy sees this Ouija Ouija board, and as she's looking at it, she just begins explaining what a Ouija board is to everyone. As Laura and Michael are running around trying to get ready, trying to get out the door, they both look very good. And Cindy kind of sits on the couch, and she's going to be by herself there. And she's like, may I use the Ouija board? Of course, sure. And and Laura and Michael leave, and they get in a Laura's car, which is presented as being kind of one that doesn't always work well. And they drive away. And Cindy is um, using the Ouija board. And I've actually written down what she writes down here. And she uh, she she says the phrase, is anybody there? She says the phrase, is anybody there, about 15 times. And eventually there is somebody there. His name is David, uh, the spirit in the room. David is 21. David thinks it's 1978. She asks David, what happened to you? He says, killed. Where? Here. And then he's saying something else when it breaks off, and she gets two letters, M and A. But then it's sort of all... Uh, the David, the spirit, she says it's a very weak connection, and David is gone. Uh, I forget what it is that that um, Laura doesn't have, but Michael drops her back off at the apartment building because his car is there. It's her keys, and I, right? I forget. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. She she's forgotten something. So Michael is going to drive to the party, and Laura is going to go back into the building and uh, pick oh, up no, whatever it's not it is. Keys. I know what you're talking about. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm getting Be- ahead of because, you because. Uh, Oh, because and and Laura it goes to the door of their apartment building uh, to and it's the Hampstead. Is it the Hampstead Hotel? It was the Hampstead Hotel. It was a hotel, yeah. Uh, it's a yeah, and they go they go to the she goes to the front door and she realizes that she doesn't have the keys. Yeah, she uh, left they're, that they're in the in, car. That's what she. They're in her car. I I imagine they're on her keychain. That's probably in the in the in the ignition. That, that David like, oh. that David gave her from the first film. Remember the keychain he gave her at the end. Oh yes, that's right. And David oh, is yeah. in the Ouija board. You see what I'm talking about? Oh. Oh my gosh! Oh my so gosh! I, it all makes sense now, and I think I saw James in the background in one of these scenes, if <laughs> I remember really correctly. Um, so, so, um, so uh, Laura is there, and she can't get Cindy on the the, the buzzer thingy, um, and so she she does a very elaborate, almost Harold Lloyd high and dizzy style, going up uh, fire escapes and ledges, and she goes out along the ledge, and she gets to the window of their 
room. I'm going to call it their apartment. Uh, And she knocks on the window. The shades kind of open. Cindy leans forward. And she's about to say, hey, Cindy, what up? Let me in the freaking place. When all of a sudden, a man appears behind Cindy, grabs her, and pulls her back. Laura almost falls off the ledge. She gets down. She tries to get an old couple. She she stops a car, and unfortunately, it doesn't have the guy from No Place to Hide. It has an old couple, and the guy wants to stop. It's, it's you know, I would stop too. But the, the wife is very much like, no, just keep going. Thank you very much, old lady. Yeah, that, I hope you hit. That made me think of yeah. Halloween, but it also made me think of Duel. Because you remember the old couple at the towards the end, she goes, yeah. "Jim." Yes, yeah. It's, it's so so and, and and so Laura Laura calls the police and they bring the fire department who 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 knocked down the door and there's nothing there and immediately um, at the point when the sort of fire department people are saying, uh, "Looks like it might be a false alarm. We don't know what's going on." Immediately, the one person you don't want to have walking <laughs> is a cop. <laughs> when yes. you, there's a false alarm going on is Dennis Franz. Yes. And he, he walks in and he is playing I've got his name around here somewhere. It's what Mac, is his it's name? Detective Max Lucas. Is yes, it's a tech, and he walks in and he's like, Okay, lady, uh, you know, this is illegal to do this and blah 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 and she's like, No, I saw someone killing Cindy. Whatever, Cindy isn't here, there's no sign of anything. Um, Michael walks in and says, Yeah, I'm her lawyer and he and Dennis Franz rolls his eyes and gives her a ticket or or some sort of something or other for uh false um pretense i don't know uh you know just being you know well, spending uh, the money of the police it. force right to come yes, out and exactly whatever. she he yes. billed her it's, basically it's it's very different from no place to hide where she called them in at least twice and they didn't mind sure. no he's already um, like here, i don't like you yeah he's and, and they do say as they're leaving one of the other cops or something says he just quit smoking and so he leaves wah, they wah. all leave and, i'm sorry did you oh, i just uh, went i just went want 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 um and so uh and so we get Laura kind of like, I saw it happen. I saw it happen. Like Michael, uh, Michael says, like, oh, okay, okay. Then the next what a day, great synopsis. S- she's like, I saw it happen. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay, okay, um, okay. Well, he he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, we'll, um, you know, I he he's going to um, do some research into uh, <laughs> what Cindy Cindy was about because we learned that Cindy is one of the partners from the law firm's like niece or something, yeah. and whenever she, whenever she's in town, she is basically whoever the newest associate is is sort of made to make her their house guest. Yeah, and she's totally and so that's why she, and she's completely flighty. And so what happens is then we cut to Laura at her job. And Laura works at the best sort of love connection-esque video dating service <laughs> thing you've ever seen. I like to uh, go to plays. Um, maybe we could go to a play together. I like movies, uh, some movies, except uh, they're kind of dirty. Uh, this uh, play I liked, um, Sound of Music. That, that was a good play, a lot of uh, singing and dancing, and the, the story didn't, you know, get in the way too much. And what do you I, think? Uh, I don't know. It's okay, you can take your time. Uh, okay. That's why I was going to say I like ballet, but I don't like, I really, I don't like it. I hope, I hope that's okay. I mean, I hope, I hope you It's all right, you know, I'll find ballet. someone else. <laughs> um, I have a Mr. Jessup. Maybe you'll find him a little bit... Perkier. We hope. Hi. Well, I can't see you, but 
you can see me. I want to meet someone who's not only sincere, but is also adult, because I, I think that two people who connect should be able to go out as soon as they meet and have a nice dinner and then go somewhere and get down to business to enjoy life, to uh, really enjoy each other's company and really get to know each other in a warm... Excuse me, Laura Michaels on three. Okay. Um, keep watching. Maybe it'll pick up. And her boss is that one guy who is the um he's the mortician from my favorite episode of Ellery Queen, The Adventure of Old Lang Syne. He's the lawyer from Fletch. It's he um, is... it's George Weiner and just real quick cuz I didn't even occur to me that this happened. But um George Weiner to me, he's been in tons of stuff, but he's most famous to me for being the dentist that sexually molests Rose at the at his office do you remember that episode oh. where she says i felt like he touched my breast and they and then she goes to see him again and he's putting her under and he goes that. and he goes wowie wowie wow wow and uh you know what i mean and then she takes a little I, air I thing think i blocked she, that out yeah it's a really good episode but anyway that's like the ha- side story but um what occurred to me is that the guy on the monitor that so there's a woman there with kathleen beller watching the videos to see if she wants to date these guys and the first guy on the monitor i don't know the actor's name but he always plays sleaze bags and he's in an episode of The Golden Girls. And he's in an episode where I don't remember if it's a, if it's part of the story, if it's just a, one of those flashback episodes where they actually had new material, but they play it like a flashback, where somebody puts an ad out for B. Arthur saying she will do anything for $6 an hour. And all these people start showing up at the doorstep, and he's one of them. And he, oh, wow. And he wants something really sleazy from her, and she kicks him out. And so it just occurred oh. to me that they were they were on Golden Girls. Oh, wow. I yeah. didn't. Oh, that's cool. Okay, yeah, yeah, and her, um, she, she, um, yeah, she's trying to hook, um, the, you know, a lady up with with some of the video dating folks, and Michael calls and basically says what I just when said. When Michael it's, calls, Ooh, when yeah. Michael, calls. Uh, Cindy is is very flighty and that kind of thing, and Laura is still isn't convinced because she saw the guy, but Michael's kind of leaning towards, uh, maybe you didn't see the guy, and Cindy just it was a joke. It was all a joke. Um, and then we, we see briefly her boss who says he wants to talk to her about her application. I guess she's a temp or something at this moment. And uh, Laura says to Michael, remember, it's Christmas time. I'll meet you at the mall, fourth floor. We'll do some shopping. And then uh, we see Laura at the mall. And she goes up to sort of a counter that I don't quite know what the counter is exactly. It's not like it's not like self – it's – uh, it's it's like so she goes up the counter and she says she wants something for protection and the guy says well like six floors guns or something like that and she says no no something like um like a whistle or something and he gives her like a pen where if you push a button or twist something it makes a really annoying sound and that's great and and he sells it to her and she goes into an elevator to meet up with Michael and as she's in this crowded elevator all of a sudden these black gloved hands cover her face and she hits the alarm and it goes off and it's crazy and she takes off running and she sees michael and michael michael oh my god he's after me and suddenly this little cute little bald guy shows up and says laura don't you remember me i'm sorry i didn't mean to scare you i thought you saw me and laura does not know who this guy is he says i believe he says he's a doctor if i remember correctly and and he's oh my gosh uh, uh, dr blatt or something oh my gosh and and she's i don't know who you are and he says oh well oh i don't have my toupee on and he like grabs a guy's sweater or something or hat hat and puts it over his head and said look my hair hi 
Great thing about this guy is that this guy is, to me, will forever be the host of High Adventure, my favorite sketch from Kentucky Fried Movie. He is the one who interviews Paul Flamand. Um, world traveler and it is the sketch from Kentucky Fried Movie where they begin to discuss Paul Flamand's adventuring and all of a sudden the boom lowers into the frame and the boom begins to do wacky things I don't know if you guys have seen Kentucky Fried Movie no, but, he's but that very... actually sounds familiar to me that sketch yeah, it's very fun, and that's this guy, and he's 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 fun, and it's like who's who is this guy? What's going on? And so Laurel, uh, Laurel, La- that's Laura and Michael together. I'm sorry. So Laura and Michael, uh, they head on um, home, and now let me make let me make sure I got this right because this one goes a little um, uh, crazy on me here. Uh, services in Pierce. So okay, all right, okay, Kenneth Blatt. Or, oh, oh! This is followed by the foot massage sequence, uh, which is kind of sexy. I think uh, it's it's a pretty sweet uh, foot massage sequence because I'm used to um, from uh, No Place to Hide. She's wrapped up all the time, but in this one, she's just got a towel on, and Mr. Brandon is massaging her feet. So it's 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 all good times all the time. Then uh, let's see. Um, yeah, it's kind uh, of a, it's kind of a twisty. Yeah, the, there, there's a lot. That goes on. So, like, uh, she gets—I think she gets a call from her boss, right? And he says to her, um, "You know, it's one thing to like embellish your application, but the, everything on here is a complete lie." Like, mm-hmm. and so it turns out where she went to school and where she um, uh, had worked previously were none of those places existed, and mm-hmm. that he just can't hire her, even though he thinks she's a really efficient person. And mm-hmm. so, like, so we've got all these things kind of starting to happen. Where, where like um, these the people are coming up to her that she doesn't remember and they recognize her and these places that she swears she worked at don't exist, and and even now Michael is starting to question her sanity. Yes, and and they they sit down that evening with the Ouija board. Uh, she she begins to use it and she discovers um, uh, someone. She's talking with someone named Mark, mm-hmm. who says that Mark killed Cindy. And Mark says that he's going to kill her. She says why, and he says murder witness, okay. and she passes out. They do a CAT scan on her, and the, the the doctor, who's a very amiable guy, kind of calls Michael in and says, "I want you to look at these brain scans of her." And the brain scans show evidence of shock treatment, which she has obviously never mentioned to him. Yeah, and that's a that's and, a that's and, a deal breaker. 
Yeah, they, they, yeah, and and um, she and they they sort of have a, a meal together where she's acting. She's very sort of agitated. She, you know, she's lost her job. There's a sequence where they go swimming in the pool after she loses oh, her so job, good, where yeah. the killer comes after her, but she she gets out of it, and she's very agitated. And he's he's trying to talk to her about the shock treatments, but she's she's um uh, she's Resistant. she doesn't remember any of that. Yeah, she's very resistant. She doesn't remember any of that. And what happens is all this stuff begins to build up that that she doesn't quite remember and all these other things. And then we get, is it the Laura Daniels girl detective? Is that the name of it? Yeah, this is one of my favorite moments in the film. Um, First of all, it's got Kit Kit Madonna is the book clerk. Mm. And I love that oh, woman. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think yeah. she might have been on a Golden Girls, too, now I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just love this scene oh, so yeah. much. So, so, so he's doing, yeah, Michael's out doing some Christmas shopping and he passes a bookstore and he sees a display, Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, and then Laura Daniels, girl detective, which is Laura. And he goes in and this, this bookseller takes him to these books. And, and it's like he's looking at these books and these books seem to be Laura. And he goes home and confronts her, and it doesn't go well. And she cries a lot, and he storms out. Michael, stop it! I'm telling you the truth! The truth? The truth's in here, damn it! Well, I've never lied to you! Oh, really? Well, that's a bizarre coincidence, don't you think? Kind of boggles the mind a bit. Parents, Jack and Molly, father in the foreign service, every job you've ever had, every story you've ever told me! It's all in there, word for word. How do you explain that? I don't know. I've never read these books. You didn't read them. I don't think you'll find any surprises, though. It reads like a damn diary. I am Laura Daniels. I'm Huckleberry Finn. All right, maybe I am insane. You know, I would have bought that up until today, but I'll tell you something. I think there's a much simpler answer. I think you've been lying all along. And I'll tell you something else, whoever you are. You're a damn good liar. Well, if I was such a good liar, then why didn't I change my name or something so I wouldn't get caught? You tell me. I don't know, Michael, don't. Where are you going? I don't know. Michael, maybe there's another explanation about the Ouija board and the... Hi, hold it. That's the topper. You know, that really fits. Why? Laura Daniels and the mystery of the Ouija board strangler. Michael, come back. Come back, Michael. Michael. And, um, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't go well. And at that point, Laura begins to investigate... The inf- the brief inf- the bits of information they have from the Ouija board, and she goes to uh, microfiche, and she finds a headline like "Murder and Arson at Hampstead Hotel in 1978," and it was I think it says like a guy named uh, is it Mark Banning was killed, and his sister uh, he was 25 and his sister Jennifer 17 was like traumatized by it, so she begins to sort of investigate. Well, in there also. And, and I'm, I'm trying to get to the investigation, but the um, the guy who may or may not be the killer breaks down her door with an axe and attacks her. Oh, and no, the cops yeah. don't care. The cops don't seem to care. She hides in a closet and gets away. But she begins an investigation into it, and she goes to the hospital where the newspaper article said Jennifer was taken. And she talks to a very strange man who says she went from the hospital to a, um, uh, a, uh, a mental hospital, sort of upstate. Or, or uh, oh, I love yeah, that I, scene. I, yeah, 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 and and so it's a guy who's very much like he's very sort of callous and kind of joking around and trying to keep it light when clearly Laura is in a lot of distress. And so, about an hour or so into the movie, Laura drives up to where this mental hospital is to try to find out about 
Jennifer Banning, and she calls uh, David's. Uh, I'm sorry, Michael's assistant, and says, uh, "Please have him come up to here. There's like a motel nearby, and I just I'm gonna try to find out what happened to Jennifer Banning." And she goes to the hospital and asks about Jennifer. And the nurse on call, sort of sitting there, says, "Oh, I'll call the doctor or the head nurse down. She'll help you out." And I'm going to end this uh, plot synopsis at the point where Laura is kind of standing there, waiting for the nurse to show up, who's going to tell her what happened to Jennifer Manning, which will hopefully help her find out who this man is who is after her. When all of a sudden, a man grabs Laura and picks her up, and oh my God, it's crazy, and it goes to commercial break, and I'm going to stop right there. Okay, um, I'm. I'm going to start this one because I've seen this movie a few times. Um, I love it. I think it's really good. But what's interesting to me is I wrote, I meant to reread the review. I wrote a review of this for my blog a couple years ago. And at the time, I was really confused by certain things about the film. And I felt like it couldn't tell whether it wanted to be supernatural or just a straight thriller. But when I watched it this time, I was like, this movie makes perfect sense to me. I don't understand why. I couldn't figure out what was happening the first time. I feel like it's pretty linear. I mean, there's a lot of information you have to pay attention to. And so it helps. It's not, I don't feel like it's a movie you can just kind of sit back and let the movie drive the whole way. You have to kind of pay attention to a lot of the names and the stuff that she's discovering and like uh, what's happening to her in a way that's different than maybe No Place to Hide, which I think is really layered with its characters, but it's somehow easier to follow, even though it's maybe even twistier and turnier. There's something about the structure that makes it easier for me to sort of understand it from beginning to end. Here, I think I paid better attention this time, knowing I was going to be having a conversation with two other people about it. And so I can't figure out what I didn't understand. So I really liked it this time. I've always really loved the film, but I think I really loved it this time. The the, the revelations that happen in the film, although by the time they get to the hospital, I think it starts to lose a little steam in terms of revelations. But um, because I think you kind of know who Jennifer is when she's going through the microfiche and you kind of get this idea, oh, she's Jennifer. But uh, but like that scene in the bookstore is so amazing because like the revelation is just crazy because Michael Brandon, the way he discovers that and his own reaction to it is like he can't believe that he's been dating this woman and loves her and her whole life came out of a series of children's novels right and he and the way he reacts to it is really like organic and real and um and he i think he he's the anchor of the film in a lot of ways because he's having all the reactions that we would be having and so I think this is so good. I think it's really underrated. I think it's much better than people give it credit for. One thing I wanted to point out, though, is it's obviously a Brian De Palma ripoff, not just counting Dennis Franz, who was in several De Palma films. But, like, you remember when they're at the mall and she's being chased by the killer? He looks like the killer in Body Double. Am I right? With the glasses? Yes, yes. And there is that scene on the elevator, right? It's slightly mm -hmm. different, but Craig Wasson gets on the elevator, and then the killer, I think, is outside the elevator, and the doors close on him. And everybody in the elevator goes, oh, that guy was creepy looking. And here, you think the killer's in the elevator with her, right? So you don't see the doors close on him. But it's got that same almost chase scene. And so it's interesting how it's a De Palma wannabe in some ways, and I don't mean that as a criticism, but it's riffing on a lot of those really glossy thrillers that were coming out in the early and mid eighties. But then it's adding this really interesting supernatural element to it, which I think makes it unique to a lot of those types of films. And I think it's really good. Uh, I loved it. Um, and I loved it even more this time. I think it's a movie that if you've seen it and you were kind of ambivalent about it, 
then you should see it again because I think it makes a lot more sense uh, the second and third time you see it. That's my opinion. Um, Nate, had you seen this before? No, this was the first time oh. I've seen this one. Okay. I I really liked it. Um, I love Cindy's hair. Oh, it was just 80s fantastic. Oh, it was awesome, the crimp? Yes, and the whole like brunette in the back and blonde in the front. Yes. I loved it. She's everything. Um, and I love the whole like imagine yourself in a ball of you know, white light when you're playing with the Ouija board, you know, and, and then of course, uh, when she was being, you know, attacked and, you know, you know, Kathleen Beller almost falls off the ledge. I would have fallen. I mean, that I've just been the end of me, I'm afraid. Um, (laughs) so many scenes here at the beginning of these movies would have ended you. I know I wouldn't make it. Very very short film, (laughs) but I'm not Kathleen Beller. True. Um, who is, yeah. And I just love how, you know, she's like terrified and screaming at the old couple. And like, I just feel like the old woman's like, oh, whatever, we're going. <laughs> I, mean, um, I love the uh, stalking scene at the mall. And I especially love everybody's reaction when she sets off her alarm in the elevator and everybody grabs their ears and like, oh, ow. <laughs> it's just so awesome. I was laughing during that scene. Um, you know, and then there's the swimming pool scene. So oh, that scene was so good. When she comes yeah. up out of the pool and he's holding the knife. Oh, yeah. that was great. And then, of course, the axe in the door. Yeah. When she looks through the peephole and sees the axe about to smash the door down, I was like, oh, man, that was uh, that was one of the really like good moments that kind of like makes you tense, makes you want to claw the arms of the sofa that I'm sitting on. Um, um, and, you know, I think she should have warned a dude to always check his back seat before getting in the car. You know, she learned the hard way and oh, no place yes. to hide <laughs> about that. Um, and then of course, you know, again, like I love her in this movie because I don't feel that she's, I I mean, I I feel that she's willing to defend herself. You know, I mean, she, like, there's that scene with the lamp and she busts the lamp over the bad guy's head. And I was like, all right, yeah, I I can go with this. I liked it a lot. And I I thought it was, uh, um, I won't get into major spoilers on this, even though we probably are going to, but there, the scene with the Ouija board at the end, I thought was really good too. It was kind of very eerie, yeah. you know, yes. it set a good tone for, you know, the ending to the film. Um, but I mean, overall, I really, really enjoyed it. Now I probably, if I had to choose between the two, I would pick no place to hide just yeah. because, I mean, it's, I mean, I just love that movie. Um, but this one is, is really, really good as well because it's, I don't know. It it's hard to explain, but I thought it was thoroughly entertaining. Oh, for sure. Like I was not bored. Like during this double feature, I was not bored like at all during any of it. Yeah, it's it's compelling. It's so nice. just another thing I wanted to mention because while you're talking about it, it, made me think of because we're comparing the two films. What's interesting about No Place to Hide and uh, Deadly Messages is that in No Place to Hide, she's being gaslighted right by people, but in this movie, she's kind of gaslighting herself, right? Mm. And so as a protective measure. So it's kind of yes, interesting yeah. how, how they've approached kind of these two different things. They're similar in a way, the characters, but then it's so different the way what's happening to them is like, is like things are happening to her from outside forces in no place to hide. And they're still to a degree, right? Obviously the killer is, we find out is a real person, but he's not necessarily gaslighting her. She created this whole thing about herself. Um, 
to save herself. So it was just, it's really interesting. Um, anyway, I just thought of that while you were talking. I wanted to bring that. I'm not even sure that made sense, but I felt like I had to say it out loud. No, yeah, I, I think I think it does because because there is an actual um, in, in this there is an actual moment when she goes to the hospital where it's kind of established how the killer or or the wannabe kill. Well, no, he I guess he is a killer. killer yeah. Um, le yeah, learns about where she is. It, it it is said that an article is published in a major right. magazine about Jennifer. And that's how the person who comes after her knows where she is and attacks her at the mental hospital and she escapes. And uh, uh, I guess I, I'm a little vague on how exactly she went from being Jennifer in the mental hospital to suddenly being Laura Daniels. Um, I was going to say pet detective, Laura Daniels, girl detective. Well, I think it happened in the hospital because uh, remember she goes into oh, the library okay. and okay. then and she yeah, says, yeah. Just, you loved, you She's lived already. Here. Yeah, she she's already created it in her mind before what, the guy shows up. Possibly, that's what's yeah. so interesting too, is because the, so so, and I'll get to you in a minute, Dan. But so they, oh, you know, the guy grabs her at the hospital, and then it turns out he's an orderly or something. He said, "You almost got me fired." And then the nurse comes out, this head nurse, and she says, "Oh, it's good to see you, Jennifer. We wondered what happened to you." And she starts to tell the story about how Jennifer came after her brother was murdered, and um, I totally forgot what I was gonna say. And so, or so she says, so she's explaining the story and then, and then she says to her at one point, she's what's really weird is she's taking her into sort of the bowels of the hospital and she says, you know, you're free to come and go as you like. And then she fucking locks that cage. And I thought they're lying to her. Do you remember that when she goes down to the library, oh, they yes. lock the security yeah. door and I, and she yeah. did that for the security of other people. But I thought that they were actually tricking her back into the hospital and they were going to uh, yeah. put her like in a yeah. like a padded room, but so anyway, but the nurse turns out to be a really like good woman, and she takes her and she and she starts telling showing her all these books, and she's like, "You lived here and you loved uh, the Laura Daniels uh, child detective books." So, so this is the part that gets me. If she's clearly unstable, now she's not. I don't yeah. think she would harm anybody, but how can she f be free to come and go if she thinks she's a character in a children's novel? Yeah, yes, that that that's. That, I kept thinking that same thing too when she was in there. She was uh, the nurse was taking her deeper and deeper to lock her because you don't see anybody else. There's no there's it's it's literally it's almost like it looks like it's an empty hospital apart from yeah. this nurse, the orderly, and the other nurse and her. And it looks and I kept waiting for the moment where she she would be like, okay, well, it's great to have you back, Jennifer, and you can't leave. Yeah, that's that's where I thought I was going. But but she doesn't. She actually when she actually she sort of takes her into the deepest part of the hospital, shows her all the books, and then she says, "Well, the thing is, we were going to release you anyways before you broke out, so you're free to go." And it's like, does that is that how it works in in, in hospitals? <laughs> she's clearly I, I, not okay. She's she's yeah, she's, she's got problems and she needs help and. Uh... You, have you seen her resume? <laughs> yeah, is there something wrong? But anyway, I'm sorry, Dan. Have you seen this? Had you seen this before? No, no. And I love Ouija board films. Be Ouija board, Ouija, Ouija. I would uh -huh. say Ouija, but it's Ouija. I, I don't know. Isn't I say Ouija, but you're probably right. I, I, I the thing I love about Ouija board films is that, that there's this, this thing. It's like I, I always I always compare them to like if in like the 1920s they made like Morse code films because it's always like someone has their hands there. And it's like. What what is going to happen to us? Uh, D, E, <laughs> yeah, I know it takes forever, A, right? <laughs> death, T, death, H, 
death. And and you get these and in this one they kind of cut around it. It's and but I it's like that, using a rotary phone. Yes, exactly. exactly. It's like I I um it, it the. Uh, I, well, it, it's interesting too because Cindy and uh, Laura they do it differently. Like Cindy does that thing where, uh, "What's your name?" and like her hand like does a couple circular twirls. D, A. But when Laura does it, it's like, um, uh, you know, um, why are you going to kill me? M U R D E R. You know, and, and I like the fact that it she does it a little quicker. That's why we love Beller because <laughs> That's right. she does that. But I was going to say the only film where I really think a Ouija board sequence. I love Witchboard, obviously, but a Ouija board se- Ouija board sequence is like like sort of like oof is Spookies. Oh, I if you've ever seen remember. Sp- it's been so long. Where they have a Ouija board, and the way it works is that um, uh, as they're asking questions, the old creepy guy who lives in like the bowels of the place who's trying to kill everybody to bring his bride back to life. Uh, whenever they ask a question. He it cuts to him and he gives the answer and then you see the answer occur and so there's kind of like, it's it's a little more fun like that but um uh, no I had not seen this I watched um uh, no place to hide and then the next day I watched this and the first thing I thought was well that feels very similar to no place to hide but it was only the second time through that I realized they are very different. I mean, it is, um, you know, uh, Kathleen Beller seeing things that other people don't see and stuff, but I'm not going to, you know, I love slasher films and, you know, the, you know right. to the average person. Yeah, to the average person, they all look the same. Um, but I think the thing, the big difference for me is that No Place to Hide, J- Jimmy Sangster scripts are very, they're very methodical, they're very... Um, uh, they're very much like Hitchcock films. They're they're not. There's not a lot of. Uh, well, no, there is some sort of emotion and stuff from No Place to Hide, but they're he he structures them in a very mechanical way, and everything means something. The thing I love about Deadly Messages, having watched it three times now, is that there are so many asides and so many strange moments that um, they never derail the film, but they're fun to watch and. Um, things like the character of Cindy, she's just she's only in it for like five minutes, but she's so goofy. And it's like, where'd she come from? And I've written down a bunch of other characters. Yeah, oh, almost all the side characters have something unique about That's... them. Like uh, Kate McDonough, as I mentioned in the store, uh, is the clerk is hilarious. Kurtwood Smith is the lieutenant, and he's amazing Smith. in it, right? And and uh, her boss, and even the guy on the videotape, the first guy that they're watching in the. Um, office yeah they have so many so this is interesting because so if you're going to compare the two no place to hide has like five people in it right yes and, and it's it's no nonsense and it yeah. does boom boom this boom, has boom. like 35 people in it you know and and every, everyone is like giving it their all like the guy in the elevator he's just when he's putting the hat on his head they're he's having so much fun and it's even to like the nurse is so charming in the hospital yeah. she's talking with a woman who's clearly deranged but but she's talking to her like there, there's a sweet moment at the end where they both step out into the and there's like a and during the final evening there's like a huge windstorm whip, whipping up and they step out in the storm it's clearly cold and the wind's blowing and they're saying their goodbyes to one another and it feels like two friends yeah like saying goodbye to one another but it's actually a nurse in a mental hospital saying goodbye to it's like a schizophrenic woman <laughs> yeah. who sh- make sure to let out but it's still so charming yeah and it seems like i've re- i'm sorry i just want to say you know I'm- who i loved i loved is the pizza guy at the end 
Also, I was gonna bring. Yep, he's he was the my best because next... he's like a hero. So like he, so like okay. So Laura, they get to the hotel. Laura goes to the hotel after the hospital visit, and Michael Brandon meets her there, and and they sort of make up. And she's like, I have so many things to tell you because she's sort of figured out her life now, and mm-hmm. and they're whatever. I think they had sex maybe, and they're being very intimate. And she's like, I really want a pizza. So he goes out to get the pizza while she's in the tub, and the pizza guy. First of all, they sounded so rude on the phone that I was really surprised how warm he was when he got there but so michael brandon gets the pizza and it's got this new hot uh, box that'll keep the pizza thermal hot it's the that i i have it right here i have it circled the thermal box he's he's like that's the new thermal box so it's really hot and he michael's like yeah thanks yeah that's really hot in there be careful that's the thermal box and it's like it's a regular pizza yeah, it's awesome. I don't know. where, where he, are you you're like living in 1964 i love it it's fantastic but he goes in so michael goes into the car and he gets attacked and the pizza guy comes out as Michael's like sort of he gets stabbed in the leg and Michael's kind of struggling and the pizza guy's like oh man what happened and so he takes the pizza guy takes Michael Brandon to back to the hotel which is where the killer is now gone and and at first I thought he was being a chicken shit because they get out of the car and Michael has a limp leg and then the pizza guy's like I'll wait out here and so, you know, and I was like, wow, thanks. <laughs> but he was really waiting out there sort of as a cover because because he ends up, so Laura's out in, like, the woods of the hotel. She's trying to run away from this guy who's attacking her. And so Michael Brandon comes out to, to find her. And I think the pizza guy sees something happening in the woods. And he goes with Michael out yes. into the woods to help him. And I thought that was so amazing. It was just like, he's yes. this warm guy. He makes, like, six bucks an hour, right? And like, yeah. and he's like the coolest pizza guy ever. And I totally fell in it's, love with him. Yeah, he he yeah he helps Michael. He he gives him the thermal box, and he ties like a tourniquet around Michael's right, um, calf, right. like or or, or or thigh, um, to, because he gets stabbed in the leg. Yeah. So he's like, this is the best pizza guy ever, and that's why I realized watching it for the third time this afternoon. I realized the reason why I love this movie to bits is because I think the story itself is solid. You you might be like unlike No Place to Hide where it's I think a little tough to figure out exactly what's going to happen next, but that's Jimmy Sangster for you. This one you might be slightly ahead of it, but there are so many weird characters. So I mean, even the um the motel they stay at. Oh, I love that like this couple, couple at the motel. There's so much fun. It's like um there there's this weird moment where um she's in the bathtub, uh um Laura's in the bathtub, Michael's gonna get the pizza. Um and it's it's sort of intimated that the killer is outside, but you don't actually see him outside because he's in Michael's uh, uh, truck or, or car. And she's in the bathtub, and you hear a window smash. And she goes out, and like the wind has blown a like a tree branch through the window. And the weird thing is, and I love this because she goes to the hotel motel owners and says, "Can I just sit with you for a bit until my boyfriend comes back?" And they do, and they're watching the Tingler. They're pretending it's not the Tingler, but it is the Tingler. And and it's great because they're sitting there watching it. And then when her boyfriend comes back, oh, when Michael, she thinks Michael's back, she says, okay, I'll go back to my room. And she goes back to her room. And all I could think is, what about the broken window? There's a broken window. Yeah, they need Should a you fix room, the broken right? window? it's freezing. Yeah. Should there be a new window? But, but it's just great because it's like, it's one of those movies where um, uh, and I'm, I'm going to bring up a couple movie uh, comparisons uh, some of these, and these are not movies that are similar to Deadly Messages, but these are movies that have characters who sort of appear and they're sort of eccentric and wonderful and kind of populate the movie. But I was going to say, first off, there is a movie called The Child from oh, 1977. Yeah, I love that movie. And 
and it's it's great with uh, with uh, Alicianne Del Mar and this weird family and Rosalie, zombies. Rosalie, and Rosalie, Rosalie, and in Stephen Thrower's review of the child for Nightmare USA, he points out that there is a neighbor, this le- this old lady who Alicianne hangs out with, who. He says the great thing about this this actress is she doesn't seem to realize that she's only in the movie for like five minutes because whenever she talks, she's like really loud and she's boisterous and things like that. And she kind of like takes over the movie. And you have other movies like um, I was going to say um, a movie I thought of was Skullduggery. Mm. Uh, have you seen Skullduggery? I know I you've haven't. seen Skullduggery. I right? um, yes, I have. It's a very odd film yes and the joy of skullduggery is you think it should be doing something straightforward but then it keeps going off in these tangents like you see liberace in a church there's this couple named the bulls who are renting costumes and it's like every few minutes like these sort of eccentric characters show up who kind of have something to do with it but not quite and don't go in the woods is another one with all the yeah. Don't the wood. And I and the last ones I was gonna say, these are regional ones. Uh Rotor, the Robocop ripoff from mm-hmm. like nineteen eighty eight, and the Hungan from the end of the eighties. Uh Rotor was made in Dallas, the Hungan was made I think in New Jersey, or maybe upstate New York. And those are sort of films where the filmmakers put in all their friends, and so the film will stop for a few minutes to sort of showcase a friend doing something. Like in the Hungan, there's a band called Cry Wolf who play music for like five minutes. Uh, and that's the whole... And then there's a Pee Wee Herman impersonator. And and you get all these weird things where it's like, what does this have to... What is this... What's going on? What's happening? And Deadly Messages, like almost every secondary character is weird like the character in those movies. But it's so much fun yeah. because it's like it's and, and you almost like with Don't Go in the Woods. It's almost like you watch Don't. When I first watched Don't Go in the Woods, I didn't know what I was watching. But then when I saw it in the big screen, I realized it's kind of a comedy. Sure. It, it it yeah it it really is like those bits that you sit there and you watch and you go like the guy with the wheelchair who goes up the mountain and then he gets his head cut off. Spoilers. That was the most hilarious thing I've ever seen with a crowd. It was a sold out crowd, the new Beverly. The moment the guy gets his head cut off, people broke into hysterics and applauded. And it wasn't ironic. We like James Bryan was there, the director. He was one step ahead of us. And so I, I, that's why a deadly message sort of does that same thing. It has all these weird characters who come in and sort of threaten to take over the movie for a moment. When that guy's putting the hat on his head, the thermal box, the weird people at the motel, all, all these different great characters. And that's why I think I love it because it has a story that I think makes sense and has a nice through line. But it's populated with all this weirdness on the side that makes it. I thought No Place to Hide was a little too long. I think Deadly Messages is just right. Yeah, I think so. it's paced better. Maybe because it has more. Well, I don't want to say it's paced better because I don't want to put down my movie. But I do think it has a, a, a different kind of pacing to it um, because yes. it has so many people in it. And so I yeah. think maybe it benefits by, from having so many interesting. Uh, just supporting people show up throughout the film. So there's yeah. there's never like a lag. You're not just sitting with five people like you're in a place to hide. You're sitting with like a little city, right? And everybody's yes. cuckoo yeah. for Cocoa Puffs. Everybody. That yeah. makes it even better when everybody's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, and so that's why I guess at the end of the day, I think I like Deadly uh, okay. Messages a little bit more than No Place to Hide just because I love the extreme, because the extraneous characters to me make it feel like they're, um, 
they're having a little more fun with it than no yeah, place to hide. I not think that so. they're not not that they're goofing. Specific. Well, maybe when when that guy puts that hat on his head, I think surely that's joking. Well, there, it's um, got but, a lighter touch to it in a way because yeah. it's it's like it's almost like in some ways the story is secondary. In some because they, yeah, they do take yeah. over for a while. Yeah, yeah, because I think the main plot line is is serious as as all sure. as hell. Serious, okay. but I think they throw in a lot of uh, uh, bonus is along the side, which make it uh, adds an extra charm yeah, to it, which just, I didn't expect. Just to go back real quick, because we haven't really done all the twists yet. So, so what That's we find out is the guy chasing her. So I, so she comes to realization. So at the hospital, she's told that her brother was burned to death in a fire that was arson, and it was lit by her boyfriend. Who I think his name. Um, um, Franconi, and... David, David Franconi or something. Yeah, David and... Franconi. And so, um, and she hid in the closet while the, while the room burned and somebody saved her and she went crazy or whatever. But we come to find out that it wasn't her brother who died. It was her boyfriend and that her brother was blackmailing her because I think she was going to run off with him and get married. Yes. And, yep. and there was, she was too young or something yeah, like and her that. Parents or... were, he knew her parents would be very upset. So he threatened to tell them if he didn't get a certain amount of money and they had a confrontation. And so it turned out this whole time. So it's kind of hard to explain, but if you follow the Ouija board, it's telling her something that's true, but the story that she's led to believe is different. So it's, it's kind of hard to make the connection until the very end, which is why I think they have the quote unquote psycho ending where they have the guy come and explain exactly what happened, which is Kurtwood Smith and um, uh, Dennis Franz are there. And I think the doctor's there as well. And maybe the The doctor actually explains it. I can't remember. And um, and at this point, point, I'm suing Dennis Franz. (laughs) I am suing you because everything that I've told you is the truth and we've proved it. And I almost died like 15 times because you couldn't be bothered to come get me when I've called. But um, and even even Kurt Smith like brushes it off, you know. He's like whatever. But and then at the end, he's like, "Hey, Laura he's, or Jennifer." I I do I do love his character in it because the first scene they have together, where she she takes the headline of the of the arson to Dennis Franz and Kurtwood Smith, and Kurtwood Smith is sort of non-committal yeah. on what's going on. But but then the last scene, he's like, "Okay, yeah, now we understand." Yeah, well, you're right, right. You're okay. right. Okay. He's very, he's very, he's very charming, and he's very like he doesn't, he doesn't disbelieve her. He just seems to need more to go on in that first yeah. scene, which I like. But um, so I think the first time I saw it, first of all, that that whole second twist with it being not the brother, and but it is the brother. Now he's the killer. I think that threw me off. And well, there are a lot of names. It threw me off a lot too. I had to rewind a few times and be like, okay, am <laughs> I getting this correctly? And unfortunately. Just to let you both know, it's ten, and yeah, I've got a ten-hour day I ahead of me. I'm trying to get Dan to wrap it up. <laughs> I'm sorry. This was a confusing one. I knew this one would take me a while. We got to talk about both movies, though. Yeah. Oh, so that's great. I'm really glad we all liked it. Nate and Dan, you recommend this movie? I'm assuming. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yay. Okay. So um, we're gonna we're gonna close the door. We're gonna put away the Ouija board on daily messages <laughs> because Nate has to leave. And we still have some feedback and stuff to do. So we're going to say goodbye to Nate. Bye. Goodbye. It's been awesome. I've loved yeah. both of these movies. Yay. Good. Yes. Yeah. Good. I'm so glad that everybody enjoyed it. I didn't realize. I thought for sure, Nate, you would have seen Deadly Messages. So I'm surprised. But I'm glad you I, I can't believe I haven't. I immediately was like, oh, I should have watched this with Grant Grant because it's totally something he would have liked. <laughs> oh, good. So, um, so good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And we will talk to you next time.
Okay, awesome. All right, bye. Yay. Bye. Bye-bye, Nate. Okay, so All let, right. me, let me just do some background real quick, and then we can go to our feedback. Oh, of course. Yeah. Now we're getting yeah, kind yeah. of late into the show. So um, it originally aired on ABC on February 21st, 1985. It ran against on CBS Magna P.I. and Simon & Simon, which is probably why I didn't see this the first time it aired. I guarantee you I was watching Magna P.I. On NBC, it ran against Cosby, Family Ties, Cheers, and Night Court. So I think you can guess with those two shows... <laughs> Uh, or those two pro- nights of programming up against Daily Messages, it did really badly in the ratings. It uh, it came in number 61 of the 67 programs to air that week. Um, the rating was 11.4 slash 17, so that means 11.4 million homes with televisions were watching Daily Messages, which represented 17% of the television viewing audience. Those numbers would be huge now. Like, Walking Dead gets like 10 million people and people freak out over it. But back then, no. So, like, for example, the number one show of the week was uh, Dallas which we know is the Juggernaut show, which I think probably got usurped by Cosby pretty soon after this. But uh, in 1985, this week it was the ratings winner, and it came in at a 25.8 slash 41, which means almost half of America is watching Dallas. So you can see the difference there in the numbers. So that means that Daily Message is ranked overall at number 218 out of 271 telefilms to air during the 1984-85 season. Variety didn't care for the film at all. But John O'Connor from the New York Times really enjoyed it. It actually got a theatrical screening in Monte Carlo for overseas buyers, which is really neat. Just a little bit of background on Michael Brandon because he's an actor that I really like. Um, He was born in Brooklyn and he was actually going to school to be a lawyer but didn't care for it so he dropped out. He at some point was going to community college and he had some kind of back issue and he actually was paralyzed for six months when he was very young. So he kind of uh, thought about what he wanted to do with his life and he decided he wanted to pursue acting. So um, if you ever go on his website, I think it's michaelbrandon.net, and you read his bio, he goes a little bit into his TV movie career, and he really enjoys making TV movies. He has a lot of respect for the genre, partially probably because he enjoyed romancing a lot of the, his leading ladies. So in the early 70s, he's in a movie called Third Girl from the Left, uh, which stars Kim Novak, and it was her TV movie debut. And, you know, they fell in love when they made that movie and lived together for a year, which is awesome. Um, and they yeah. played lovers in that film. And he also had a romance with Marie McCormick, who we best know as Marsha Brady, when when they made A Vacation in Hell, and she wrote about him in her biography. He ended up marrying his co-star from this TV show, Dempsey and Makepeace, and um, her name is Glynis Barber. I feel like that's a show that aired in England, but I knew about it here, so I I don't know its whole history. Um, He was also married to Lindsay Wagner, actually, before he met. Whoa. It's after Kim Novak, but before Marie McCormick. Um, yeah, he, 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 <laughs> he had a good time. He knew the ladies well, and I can he's very charming. He's extremely, he's still handsome. He looks exactly the same. Um, he seems like a really cool guy. He does a lot of theater. He still works. I follow him on Twitter, by the way. Everybody should look him up on Twitter. He doesn't post much, but um, he's really cool. And I think he's currently living in England. And by the way, he's totally into being a dad. He loves being a dad. So I think that's awesome. Um, so... I think it's interesting, Dan, that you said that you didn't recognize Jack Bender's name because we've already reviewed three of his TV movies on this show. And I feel like Oops. We, we are going to need to do a Jack Bender episode because I feel like we really like all of his movies and we just, for some reason, didn't realize he had done them all. So the other three movies we reviewed are Midnight Hour, which is a favorite of ours. Um, and by the way, uh, we talked about it when we reviewed Midnight Hour. Um, do you remember that scene when they're at the drive-in? Uh, the lead girl and uh, the guy and they're walking by a big marquee and the marquee is actually for a movie named Deadly Messages. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talked about it then. So they're they're referencing oh, yes. this film, which, by the way, was written by the same guy who wrote this film. 
So Midnight Hour. Oh, I thought I recognized the name. Yeah. I just I didn't. I, Midnight I Hour know. and Deadly Messages are both Jack Bender and Bill Blake. I'm not really sure how you say his last name, and I don't want to mispronounce Blech. it. Um, Blech. The other movie, the other two movies they did uh, together, or the other two movies Jack Bender directed is In Love with an Older Woman, which is that John Ritter movie we reviewed, <laughs> which we really sure. enjoyed, and we did. and one we love, High School USA. Oh, yes. Yes, where Kristen Glover plays a god. Um, (laughs) Yes. So Bender started his career actually as an actor, and he appeared in shows like All in the Family and the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Um, He would go on to executive produce and direct several episodes of Lost. Uh, I think that's what he's most famous for now. And he directed John Ritter actually in a couple of TV movies. The other one I saw on IMDb that I recognized was something called Letting Go. And Jack Bender actually is friends with John Ritter's son, Jason Ritter, um, which I think is really nice. Screenwriter Bill Blick... Uh, as I said, also wrote. The, uh, oh, I, I already made. I already talked about the marquee. Okay, so um, and that's really all the feedback I have on that. Um, wow! But there and, you go. Oh, I, I was just saying the music is by uh, Brad Fidel. Oh, that's Fidel. right. Why did I forget that? Oh, which is nice. It's sweet. It's a sweet score. Both of these movies have have nice scores. The yeah. um, uh, no no place to hide is mostly sort of regular uh, TV movie, except when it goes into sort of a Halloween yeah. piano uh, synth kind of thing, which is really nice. Yes. Um, I don't know who did the music for that though. And I don't sorry. either. Okay. And I, I need to look at those things because you know Brad Fidel also did the music to um, Cocaine One Man Seduction, which is actually really good. Oh yeah. I remember yeah. that. I remember the soundtrack to that very well. Um, so we're just going to go to feedback now then, if you're ready, Dan. Nice. I am. I am. And now it's time for feedback. Adam Gordon here. And I remember TV and movie veteran Kathleen Beller from Dynasty, but I'm not familiar with her other TV movie work, including, of course, Are You in the House Alone? And this double feature. She is married to Thomas Dolby, who was blinded less by science and more by Kathleen's perky short hair, big eyes, and extraordinary figure, which is on display as much as is allowed in TV movies in Deadly Messages from 1985. A recurring theme on this podcast is the satanic panic of the 70s and 80s, and the Ouija board was a popular accessory of that era, and a plot driver in this solid mystery thriller. But there were a couple of flaws. All of the uninvestigated broken windows and doors, but we are talking L.A. here, and how the mystery was revealed rather slowly, leaving the last two minutes for a memory dump by our protagonist, Laura. Beller was charming in this film, which definitely looked like it was from the mid-50s, carrying a story that would have been at home in a pulp magazine or a horror comic from the early 50s. One interesting subtle element was how quickly Laura calmed down after the traumatic events early in the film, as though trying to forget what just happened, foreshadowing the fact that her entire life became centered around forcing out the bad memories from her life that occurred before the movie began. Look out for Dennis Franz auditioning for his NYPD blue role, 80s video dating services, a Ouija board being used incorrectly. You read the letters through the little window, not at the pointy tip of the planchette, a rather surly bookstore clerk, a hospital file clerk who keeps laughing toys in his office for use at the most inappropriate of times, and a wind machine turned up to 11. The nightcap features no place to hide from 81. And with Beller imagining Phantom, along with a bunch of surly Los Angeles cops again, I thought I had accidentally restarted Deadly Messages. But we know it's a proto-slasher, because of the credits running on top of a still of Beller's bugged-out eyes, saying, soon, Amy, soon 
with flowers, a chase through a school, the shot of black gloves cutting a telephone wire, and the spooky lake. The film was definitely more of a psychological thriller than a true slasher, however. Without giving away too much of the movie, the counter scheme was very risky. Amy could have easily been jailed or committed by the police, allowed to drown, or simply slashed in the cabin. The coloring of stepmother Mariette Hartley's hair to be slightly more gray after Amy's disappearance was a nice subtle touch and the symbol of a guilty conscience. Watch for a nude art class model who gets paid by the second, a police complainant drawing a better suspect sketch than the artist who works for the city, more classic cars, almost two of the most creepy sex scenes in TV history, no honor amongst thieves, a lawyer making it rain with bribes, and three shit-eating grins right out of Mission Impossible. This is definitely a recommended twin bill. The second movie could have used some more smart-ass cop lines like, now I've got you and your non-existent boogeyman. A bit of a brisker pace in the first half, and a less sexually creepy final shot. For the Money should have been the closing line, which would have provided a psychologically punchier ending, although that line was added to alleviate any sympathy for Hartley's character. Thanks again, Amanda. So, one thing he, we mentioned a couple things, but one thing he mentioned that we forgot to talk about, or I forgot, was the lake in um, Mm -hmm. No Place to Hide is really creepy. He's right. It is. It's got like that sort of, like that mist above it, right? When they go out in the night. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I mentioned that. I, I think it's very lovely during the day, but yeah, at night it goes super creepy because there seems it, it's it. They seem to be the only thing on the lake. It, it's like they have the lake to themselves. Yeah, so, yeah. it's yeah, got like it's, that kind of neat, dry, icy look to it that I really yes, like. Yes, like, yeah, like it's yeah. a cauldron or something. Um, yeah. and um, I'm not sure I know what the sex scenes are that he's referring to. There, well, there is the bit where where married Hartley and Kier, um start smooching it up after they find is it after they find amy's body or, or i forget to, and they oh yeah yeah, yeah. okay i don't and, and, oh yeah creepy, but because and then he's not there and i th- is that where the the her sculpted head is by her bed is i think oh i see what he's saying yeah I, I think i understand what he's saying now yeah because mm-hmm. i guess yeah, i just didn't yeah. think it was creepy because it was cured and whatever i did it, <laughs> <laughs> like whatever he's like super cute was, i don't care it it, it, was, it was it's interesting too i i didn't quite notice the um the 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 graying of marriott hartley's oh, hair i was actually paying attention to how much she was boozing but yeah. yeah i did i that that i yeah that is a good that's a, that's nice a neat touch. touch yeah and i never noticed that before and i'm really glad he mentioned that he always brings up something really interesting that yeah like, yeah there's always i hadn't yeah. considered um and he felt like you about the drowning in the lake um that they were really taking it as far as they could yeah, with the con yeah, um yeah and that was pretty dangerous yeah. The um and um uh and I have to ask a alcoholic question. Um there there's a thing where she she drinks herself into a stupor and passes out at one point and then she wakes up possibly with a phone call, I forget, and she immediately pours herself another drink. Now I've I've had occasional moments where I've drunk myself a little more than I should have, but when I wake up, I always have water. I don't for another drink yeah i just i think the amount of pressure she was under and that she's probably an alcoholic and also i don't know that she was had she slept all night was it daytime it was wasn't it was she in her she was i think so yeah Yeah, that yeah yeah no yeah yeah no if i wake up like an hour later i might still have Mm -hmm. another drink but like yeah if if i've gone all night yeah if i got all night then i want something with a lot of grease in it and probably (laughs) water 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 yeah yeah and some coffee what what what, what would you have, the, the grease? Uh, well, it's so difficult because when I used to get, well, I guess I do it before I would go to bed, not after I woke up. But, like, mm-hmm. I used to go to Carl's Jr. in L.A. Oh, sure. There was that Carl's Jr. Uh, oh, God, I can't remember where it was, but it was in Hollywood. 
and um and oh, i used to always get their like onion rings and whatever else they had like zucchini remember the bread sure. zucchini they had yeah yeah so good yeah, yeah and and i would eat that usually or taco bell which isn't particularly greasy but it it kind of fills you up it feels like it's expanding huh. in your tummy you know what i mean <laughs> and so like it kind of makes you feel full and it kind of helps so that your alcohol isn't just sitting in your stomach acid that's okay. kind of the goal so if i i don't get that hungover very often but if i wake up hungover i usually want something like a full-on garden burger and fries oh sure okay all right yeah i because I, I always i always see that in movies where like uh they drink themselves into a stupor then they wake up a few hours later and then they have something to drink to calm well, their drinking down and i i don't i don't i think i, I told I you my old brother-in-law he was a fucking drinker and he was staying with oh. us once and he went out partying and he came back and he spent the night, you know, and it was the next day and he was drinking a Bloody Mary, which is why they're so popular, I guess, in the morning. And he said the best way to avoid a hangover is to not stop being drunk. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got a lot of, I got a lot of work to do tomorrow. So, uh, yeah. yeah then, so, so basically uh, he, he wanted to stay drunk. So he just kept drinking. Well, okay. Okay. Well, I guess, I guess I can see that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Mary and Hartley's good. I'm convinced. Yeah. It happens to the best of us. Um, so, um, so thank you, Adam. I really appreciate that. Um, thank you. Yeah. I think Adam had something he wanted to post on the comment section of the website. So um, I don't know that I've seen it yet. I'll have to ask him, but I'll have him give it to me. And um, or he can post it in the comments and I'll direct people to it or something to that effect. Cool. Because um, cool. he didn't want to be too spoilery, but we went ahead and spoiled it. So um, mm -hmm. it's it'll be fine. So just briefly, I just want to go over Instagram because I thought this was kind of a funny exchange. So I asked people to leave comments below, you know, like on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And um, and then I take the responses that people have. And nobody on Instagram really really talked about the films, but it was just kind of funny. It was the same people constantly. Every time I posted something about it, they would post a comment. So like um, our friend Hayden Watkins uh, wrote, oh, I love Beller. And then My Little Pony 66 uh, wrote, Love, No Place to Hide. Then Dave Felter, a good friend of mine, wrote, My Heart Just Exploded. Then our friend Cinema <laughs> Dumeep, who does the Retro Love podcast, wrote Love Bell. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Hayden Watkins came back and he wrote, Excellent, looking forward to that one. Look uh, at the size of Kathleen's noggin. Oh, it was the picture I posted of her next to the sculpture of her head. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And then, and then my friend Pop, who goes under the name Pro Propagatrix, I'm sorry, it's hard to say out loud, wrote, hey, it's Mrs. Dolby. And then Dave Felter, my friend Dave Felter, wrote, Mrs. Felter, which I thought was kind of a funny thing. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that was that was a response on Instagram. So then um, on Facebook, Elizabeth DeLeon said, Mary White was one of our favorite telefilms, which is the first, I think, TV movie she made and one I said I haven't seen yet. Um, David Asasino said uh, Deadly Messages looks rad. Adrian yeah. Trailer wrote, haven't seen Deadly Messages in years, looking forward to the discussion. Melanie J. Ellen wrote, the husband and I talk about her a lot because she married Thomas Dolby. She always shows up <laughs> in our classic TV shows. Then the conversation starts again about her and Thomas Dolby. Um, <laughs> our friend Jeremy Giles uh, wrote, I've only seen her in Mary White and Are You in the House Alone, both of which I own. And then someone came in and recommended that he try out Deadly Lessons, or Deadly Messages, I'm sorry. I knew I was going to do that. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. And then on Twitter, Cintero Bang wrote, Marriott, Moxie, and Sangster, sign me up. Um, <laughs> so that was our real quick feedback. And then we got one piece of email feedback from our friend Jack. Um, hey, he, Jack. Yay. He wrote, Jack DVD 78 here with a few comments. There is no place to hide from deadly messages. I've grown to love Kathleen Beller because of her TV movies and I recently dis uh, oh, that I've recently discovered. 
Previously, I had only known her for, as Kirby on Dynasty. There were times where Kirby irritated me, and I wanted to smack her and tell her to stay away from Adam Carrington. That guy is no good, girl. Get away from him. This isn't Catherine's fault as she is playing the characters written. Looking back, she was a, a natural for the role. Deadly Messages has Bella partnered with Michael Brandon, and whom I loved in Dario Argento's Four Flies on Green Velvet. There's a touch of satanic uh, panic here with Lori's roommate having fun with the Ouija board, which leads to trouble, and soon after we have a murder. False resumes, great 80s indoor uh, mall shots, a visit to the mental house, a nice Brad Fidel score, Fidel, I'm sorry, Fidel score. Fidel, yeah. And a friendly pizza maker known as Dick Pizza. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I love the pizza guy. I want to be Mrs. Dick Purple Pizza. Box. I want to be Mrs. Dick Pizza. He's a hero. Um, and then he goes on, love no place to hide. Uh, this was my second time seeing it. Beller plays an art student who keeps seeing a masked man stalking her, or is she just imagining it all? Written by the great Hammer Horror Films go-to guy, Jimmy Sangster, based on a story from Harriet Steinberg. Deadly Messages made me think about one of the few Jimmy Sangster's uh, directed films, Fear in the Night from 1972. Oh, wow. Yeah. Judy Geeson plays a woman who is, has a gathering, um, who, is, who is getting over a nervous breakdown and moves to the English countryside to live with her husband at a boys' school and is, ter and is terrorized by a man, all the while having the great Joan Collins as the headmaster's wife taunting her. If you haven't seen Fear in the Night, oh, yeah, Fear in the Night, it has a slow pace but is still rewarding. That's one that I've always wanted to see and I never have, so I should check it I, out. I saw it ages ago. I remember, like, I mean, that's, that's the thing with all the Jimmy Sangster stuff. It's, it's, all, it's all about building and building sure. and building and then hit, hitting you with the twists. Yeah. No Place to Hide is a great story and, in my opinion, a, has a great plot twist. Love Marion Hartley, who looks young enough to be Beller's older sister. It was nice seeing Kira D'Elia, and, uh, who is in my favorite film of all time, 2001, A Space Oddity. He also bashed the hell out of the piano in Black Christmas. <laughs> Gary Graham is the shady but possible love interest to Amy with good casting. Even by the end of the movie, you still aren't sure about David's motives. Gary is always great at playing these types of characters. I just rewatched a season two Knox Landing episode in which he is one of a group of people who decided to crash Ginger's baby shower and hold the ladies um, of the cul-de-sac hostage while all the men are out having drinks. I what? vaguely remember that. That makes me think of the Dallas episode. Remember where all the women are being held hostage and they're yes, I mean, he was because Sue Ellen, like Miss Texas or whatever. She has to sing feelings or something like that. That's one of the one of the first episodes. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Deadly Messages and No Place to Hide are a great pairing of TV movies, and it made me appreciate Kathleen Beller much more. She is great at playing her emotions on the edge to sympathetic, paranoid, and strong-willed, and taking the viewer along with her. Yay! Thank you, Jack. Yeah, thank you, really Jack. Good. You brought up a lot, thank a you, lot Jack. of points. And, and it, it, I, um, when I was watching uh, Deadly Messages, um, I happened to go on. Um, I, I happened to go on YouTube just to look at some comments people were making, and you never do that. You you never go on yeah. on YouTube to look at comments because they're all terrible. But I, there was just this one comment that was so dumb. I just I laughed out loud when I saw it, and it was, um, "Why did she cut her hair?" And the the response that someone wrote was, "I like her hair and her breasts." <laughs> and I, <laughs> I thought that's the dumbest comment I've ever read. Well, Maybe true. <laughs> they're absolutely both dumb. Yeah. Oh, we didn't get to talk with Nate. Uh, discuss which which hair we like better. I like better. her long hair. I um I was torn on it. I I don't think I have a preference. I I think I because in the Black's Magic she has the short hair. Yeah, well she's and cute like, with short hair, but yeah. there's something about her. You know, she reminds me of Carol Kane. 
So like okay. Carol Kane, they don't necessarily look alike, but Carol Kane looks like somebody you'd see in a silent film. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely like a BB Daniels, like yeah. with uh, like, like Just yeah, like those big eyes. Yeah. And, and I think Kathleen Beller has that same kind of ethereal, like classic, mm-hmm. classic, classic Hollywood, like before talkies. Like she just looks like a woman you'd see like with the very early 1900s. Yes, Clara Bow or someone yeah, like that. And so yeah, so I think the long yeah. hair really accentuates that sort of otherworldly. Oh beauty. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I guess I yeah I you know I, I will say the thing about her in Black's Magic just having it played here with the short hair she does look like an 80s gal. Yeah. But with the longer with the longer hair she looks less time specific. I have a feeling because yeah. I was reading an interview with her and she was saying that I think people didn't know how to cast her because she has she was 25 I think when she made No Place to Hide or 20, 22. She was 25 I think when she but she looked 17. And when she sure. would when she would go in to casting things, people would look at her and they would think, "Wow, she looks really young in her face, but she has a very womanly body." Yes. And, yes. And she's yeah. very top heavy, and you can tell in No Place to Hide they're trying to cover it up. And yes, especially yeah. Oh, and in uh, in the pool sequence in yes. um, in uh, Deadly Messages, I remember watching that sequence thinking, "Holy shlamoli!" Yeah, she wow. Has, so I think that when they were casting her, they weren't really sure because everything is about fitting into like a generic type. And I mm-hmm. think that she had two different things going on, where she was like a bombshell, but also like looked too young to think of her as a bombshell. Yes. And, yeah. And so yeah. She, I think she got turned down for roles because of that, which is unfortunate because she's obviously a very capable actress. But um, I think she's beautiful either way, but there's something about her with long hair that it, it really just kind of, it's almost like looking at another world, you know? There's just something <laughs> yeah. about her mm. with that style that I just, I could lose myself looking at her all day. I just, I just prefer it. I'm going to look at her all day anyway, just so you know. But Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. I can do it, guys. sign off here. <laughs> so we have one more piece of feedback. Um, this is just general feedback that I wanted to share, and it's too bad Nate's not here because it kind of involves him, but... Um, Hey folks, I just wanted to send a quick note uh, to let you know how much I've been enjoying the podcast. As a longtime listener to The Hysteria Continues, I've known about the podcast for quite a while through Nathan, but never had the time to give it a try. I'm glad I finally did. Here's hoping one day you'll cover the original 1979 version of Salem's Lot. I watched this as a small kid when it first aired and it freaked me out. One of my all-time favorites. Keep up the fun and please don't hit me in the face. Steve in Ohio. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. It's really Thank funny. You, yeah, that, that made me laugh out loud when I, and I told him that. I emailed him back, and I was like, I'm laughing so hard. I can't stop laughing about, please, Mom, don't hit me in the face. It's the funniest <laughs> thing I've ever heard. But anyway, um, I'm so glad you came to visit us, and I'm glad that you're enjoying it. And Salem's Lot has been brought up to me a couple different times. So that's one that if we cover it, yes. we'll just do Salem's Lot because it's a mini series. Yeah, maybe, yeah, and, maybe it's the next Halloween one or something. Yeah, that would be really good. There's, a, there's another mini series I kind of want to do first but we'll see we'll see um it just depends because you're wind, right i think the, the winds of war yeah they're, they're gonna winds. do a 24 hour we're gonna watch nice. south book one and two sentinel centennial yeah. <laughs> america centennial. um yeah we'll do, <laughs> oh, we'll yes, do them all um but we'll, we will get to salem's lot so please stay with us um so if you would like to send us some feedback feel free obviously we take audio feedback um, you can comment on any of our social medias, which uh, you can find us on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show, on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast, or you can email us at tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com, or you can visit our website. We have little comment sections after each post, uh, and that's just tvmayhempodcast.wordpress.com. I do my best to follow, well, I follow back everybody who follows our Twitter page, um, even if you're a bot. So if you're a cyborg, a cyborg, <laughs> if you're a, oh my God, I told, a Russian, you know, 
Thank you. Thank you for listening. A yes. Russian bot. <laughs> Russian bot. That's what I was the word I was trying to think of. <laughs> if you're a Russian bot, please follow us. We'll follow you back. Um, <laughs> and I try to, I try to comment with people, but I don't always get the time, but I do my best to try to keep up with what everybody's saying. And we do listen to everything and we appreciate everybody uh, listening. We've gotten almost 20 iTunes reviews, uh, Mostly just star ratings. There's a few written reviews. And we appreciate everybody who's done that. Yes, thank so, you. So, yeah, thank if you're you. taking the time to rate our show, um, thank you. And um, so there was another point I was going to make, and, of course, I've totally forgotten it. So let me just tell you what is coming up next. So we are going oh, to I'm do... excited. What is coming up next? <laughs> we are doing propaganda TV movies. So we are going to watch movies that were meant to make you anti-drug, or afraid of role-playing games. So we are going to watch Go Ask Alice, which is a classic of the early 70s. It's a mind fuck of a movie. I can't wait. And we're also going to watch Mazes and Monsters with Tom Hanks. Oh, yay! Yay, which I haven't seen. Well, I've seen it as an adult, but I, I, it, when I was 10, that movie had a huge impact on me. And, um, and I'm really looking forward to watching it again. Um, it's got David Wallace in it from Humongous. Oh yes, yes, awesome. yes, and Chris make peace. It's a really great cast. Um, and and then we'll just tell you uh, where you can find us um, with what we're doing. So the only other thing I have, except for what I mentioned at the beginning with the Last House on Left um, Blu-ray and the Rondo Awards, is that I'm my second presentation at the Alamo Draft House is coming up. And so I'm going to be at the Alamo Draft House Ritz on April 24th for the next in a series called the Made for TV Mystery Movie. Um, and so we're programming different TV movies quarterly. This will be the second one. The first one sold out. This one, actually the tickets went on sale today, which this isn't coming out for like over a week, but, um, and it's almost sold. It's not almost sold out, but it's like half sold out, which is really exciting. nice. Yeah. So, yeah. um, that's going to be a good time. I picked a really good film, by the way. I'm just letting y'all know. And I think that's all I have going on except for some writing projects, but until I turn them in and I know that they're going to use them and everything, I, can't, I don't want to say too much about it. So that's it. What are you doing, Dan? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm still waiting on my publisher to get back to me about the book, which I mentioned, I think, like a month ago. Um, they're, they're deliberating. Fingers still crossed. Uh, but, uh, yeah, eventually Super Train, uh, I think uh, when you hear this, folks, the 42nd episode will have come out. And we're knee-deep in Kristen Hawes and myself are discussing Green Hornet. The great Gore Blimey and I are four episodes into uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. And my wife and I are chatting. Actually, episode 42, we're chatting about the Adventure of the Mad Tea Party episode of Ellery Queen Mysteries with the hag, Larry Hagman. Yay. This is a lot of fun. Hey, and, real, um, real quick question. Um, didn't the yeah. Green Hornet die recently? Yes, so I think last year. Van, did Van, you guys, Van, were you guys Van, doing this? I think he, I think he died right before oh, we started. Okay, okay. So, so we didn't mention, we didn't mention it. Although we probably should bring that up, but yeah. um, yeah, um, and uh, and what else? Oh yeah, and um, one minute with Blood Lake and Iced is still going strong. We are halfway into it wow. right now. We're about we're about forty five episodes in, and um, the um, the gang of Blood Lake has just finished playing quarters for about four minutes and the gang and ice are about to have dinner before um um what is um the joseph allen johnson is that his name from slumber party massacre and berserker who wrote iced uh before he's about to show up as um jason Bourne, mr Bourne, oh. the uh, real estate guy oh, so love, it's yeah. fun it's fun guy. it's 
yeah, he's with his isotoner gloves and his cool blue um, coat and everything. And he's going to start romancing Lisa Loring in a few minutes. So that's where we are there. So I forgot to mention time. real quick that Sherry Stoner, who plays Cindy, the kind of hippie chick at the beginning of Deadly Messages, was the voice mm-hmm. of Slappy Squirrel on Animaniacs. And she was also oh, one, of, <laughs> one of the show writers. I didn't want to... I, I totally forgot to write oh, wow. that down. I knew she was famous. Well, awesome. um, yeah. Um, so Sherry... We love you. She's done plenty of. Yeah, we cool love stuff. you. you were, she was on a murder show. What? And and she she does say the line. What is it? Is anybody out there? Literally like twenty times. Yes. Or so. <laughs> I forget. She. I, I remember when I sat there watching it the first time. My, my wife actually yelled from the other room. What are you watching? I said, it's just, uh, she's just, uh, what is it? Is everything okay? Yeah, she's just saying the same line over and over, over again. again. But she's charming, yeah. and we love her. Yes, definitely, definitely. Okay, that's it for us. So we'll yes. be back sometime in April, and yeah. uh, have a good night. Yeah, good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.